Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. everybody welcome to another episode of true crime and cocktails famous fatalities edition as always i am your host lauren ash and as always i am joined by my co-hostess with the most s christy oxborough how's it going over there i don't know i mean there's the there's the real answer and then there's the podcast answer i mean podcast answer you know things are going great sure healthy couldn't complain about a thing yeah the real answer i feel like a shell of a human <laughs> I uh, I have been like quarantining at your house. Yeah, I had like I could go in the backyard. There was a pool. It was beautiful California weather. I could kind of like I could go in the whole house, and so I never felt like I was trapped. Right. And then I went to a hotel where I had to stay for three days, and it was just like here's a bed and your bathroom. We deliver you food three times a day. Good luck. And that was like okay. I just spent like. Three solid days in bed. Oh, gee. <laughs> we, yes. Because, you know, you have your you have your snack work side and then you have your nap side. Sure. Um, yeah. And then since then, I've now come home where I have to finish out quarantine in the only place that would make it so I could have a bathroom, but also not be in and around uh, my family, which is our basement, which is fine, but in the last few days has become very cave-like to me. Sure. <laughs> So, you know, I did, uh, my, my sweet husband did put up a few, like he arranged this whole room for me, which was very lovely. He also put a few of the things on the shelf back there that I have normally upstairs in my background. And then my mental health just plummeted the other day. So he just slowly slid some Christmas lights under the plastic sheeting and I created that. 
And it it did help. It did help. And that's nice because what I realize is that you are spending a very large amount of time in a room with no windows. (laughs) Which which seems on paper like, ah, how hard could it be? But I think what we're learning is, is you're starting to get a real kind of feeling, not only for prison specifically, but also like <laughs> what it's like to be in the hole. <laughs> oh, you know? I've done something wrong and I've been yeah. put into solitary for sure. Yeah, I think you have. Uh, yeah. Honestly, I think you have. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the joke is for the first couple of days, it was like, well, you do the overhead light when it's daytime, when it's nighttime, switch it to just a lamp. And that's how I tell if it's day or night. But now that I've put these lights up, <laughs> these lights are on from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. So I current like right now, this is me at one o'clock in the afternoon and one o'clock in the morning. So I couldn't tell you which of those were closer to. <laughs> so it's I've just slowly lost it. So it's like yeah. nighttime all the time is what I'm hearing. Like you're in a yes, you're in a which is nice. You're in a dive bar all the time. <laughs> Because when I yeah. think like Christmas lights year round, I think of, you know, like a dive bar. I say that in the best oh, possible yeah. way, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure dive bars don't smell like cat pee, though. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's Well, fine. it depends it's on fine. the bars you're going to. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. Uh, if nothing else, the cats, they are able to come in and out as they please. And they spend a good 90% of their day with me, which is very sweet that's got to be helpful for the mental health that's something right it is it's nice it took them like almost a day before they were like oh oh i do know her (laughs) because at first they were like okay human whatever who are you yeah but then all of a sudden i woke up in like the middle of the night to evie just like punching my throat and that's her favorite thing to do as she like tries to nestle in sure that was the moment where i was like oh she had she had a scent memory and it brought her back and she knows now. So now they're just always there, which is great. But now it's to the point where it just, I, I think I'm getting bruised because she's just always <laughs> punching me in the throat, which started out lovely and has turned like now I like almost cringe when she gets near me. So that's something we have to work out. But yeah. When I love mean, turns painful. Yeah. It's yeah, I get we're it. our own life. We're our own lifetime story. <laughs> it's, it's what's <laughs> happening over here. Well, look, really, I can't complain. I mean, I I live in a basement for two weeks. I only I have I only have another week to go. So almost done. Almost done. Yeah. Well, <laughs> God bless you. I your commitment is admirable. Again, she did it all for 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 all of us, dear listeners. Uh, all of this was to facilitate true crime and cocktails shenanigans. So uh, we're all yeah. appreciative of you and uh, your continued journey. Now, I'd love to hear again a little bit more about that. Obviously, we are going to be talking about the true crime doc series, The Staircase on this episode of the show, but we obviously spoke uh, in our last episode of the show called True Crime and Quarantine in great deal about your journey, uh, your trip to L.A., but there is a little piece of that that's missing, which is, of course, from the time you left me to the time we're at now. Now, I know we got a little bit about the basement here, but we've got to get into the hotel stay because I know that there was definitely some, uh, some things to share from that Vancouver 
hotel stay you were on. But before that, I'm really kind of like stacking the deck here right now. Before that, what I need to know is the question on my mind more than anything. What you drinking over there? Well, you know what? I'm going to say this in a nod to you, please, to be able to let you know what I'm drinking. It feels like home to me. Oh. She's, she's back on Canadian soil, so it's Palm That's Bay, a Palm Bay every baby. day. Nice. Yeah, not, not every day. It's the first day. It just, I like rhymes. There's no judgment if it was. Yeah. I mean, if I was in a room with no windows, I think I think the window <laughs> for me would be the vodka. <laughs> the, yeah, that it's... Would be the, uh, the view out. Yeah, I mean, the hotel had no booze. So that was the real... Wait a, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is the first I feel like you've told me this. And if you've told me prior and I've forgotten, it's because I blocked it. You mean to tell me they don't sell alcohol at that hotel at all? Here's the thing. They do. But not when you're a quarantine baby or whatever we're calling it when you enter the country of canada sure specifically when you enter it via air travel yeah you need to do a 14-day quarantine but the first three days have to be at a government approved hotel in whatever city you've landed in so because i can't just fly directly to go home i have to do like a two-flight I had to stay at a hotel in Vancouver and then wait for the three days. And once my three days were up, then fly home to Saskatchewan. So those three days, it was you just pick a hotel, you pick something, you just go with whatever. There's shuttle from to and from the airport, so it's fine. Yeah. Ooh, my lamp just died. It's fine. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> now you know it's officially night. <laughs> I just felt like the lamp was... Was just showing what my soul feels like. Of course. Of course it is. Yeah. Just a light going out. So I'm in Vancouver. I I was with just a group of people because a lot of us from the flight did end up going to the same hotel. Yeah. And they were just kind of the worst human beings. Mm. Like they were awful and they had to wait 20 minutes for the shuttle, which you knew going there, the shuttle was every hour. So if you don't know what time but you know if it's not there you may have just missed it you may have to wait an hour in right. total we waited like 30 to 40 minutes and these people were beside themselves and they just kept saying how they cannot wait to tell their friends in australia what they've had to put up with and i was like what you've had to put up with you waited way longer on the plane just sitting there doing nothing like you can handle 40 minutes in a fucking airport so i'm like okay you'll be fine and then we get to the hotel and they were awful to the hotel staff. Oh, no. And because when, when you check in, you have to immediately order your meals. They give you a sheet. You get three choices for breakfast and then there's five choices for lunch and supper. So they need it immediately. What's your pick for lunch? What's your pick for supper? You need it right now. And they're like, can't we just do this later? And it's like, no, we need it right now. And then we need your orders for tomorrow. Which makes sense because you have to order it by 8 o'clock the night before. Right. And at this point, we're checking in. It's noon. And so it's like, so we're really late getting in our lunch and dinner orders. So it's like, so yeah, they want it now. And they just want to get it out of the way. But this couple was just beside themselves. And I'm like, well, there's literally five options. It's not going to take a lot. Just pick. Just pick. Just pick. But it turns out 
the food was kind of like lumped into the cost of the hotel. So that's why you had very specific choices, but it was like you couldn't order anything else. Right. Even though you were attached to a hotel, they would only bring you one of those things. And sometimes you'd you'd check off the box that said Coke and they'd show up with a Pepsi as though that's the same. And you just... Yeah, that's, just, that's crazy. You just accept it, right? <laughs> well, true joke is the next day, the menu had Coke slash Pepsi, which I felt was very creative. Mm. Obviously, someone complained. Not me. I choked it down like the good girl that I am. Uh, and then you just, you just kind of get used to the weird world that it is. The bed was very comfortable. The food was good. Hey! Well, that sounds and to me like you've found some silver linings or some some like bright spots. Yeah, because that's where it ended. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I they have emailed me twice since I've been home just to be like, hey, you want you stayed here recently. You should review it. And I don't have the heart to lie. Mm. And I am too nice to be honest. Yeah, I get that. So I was just like, I don't think I can do that. I will eventually when there's been more time but if nothing else i keep trying to look at things in a positive way and i'm like you know what Uh, again roof over my head i had the window open the whole time because i knew i was coming home to no windows Mm -hmm. so i was like get in that to see that sunshine and then i i mean they got me to and from the airport alive i don't know how safely i'd say it was done that driver was a maniac neither here nor there i still made it but about, oh God, I got in around noon and around 1.30 in the morning on that first night, I'm like, you know what? I am a little tired. We got up at like four we that did. morning to make yeah, this flight. So I was did. like, you know we what? Did. It's been a day. I did have a full, full cry breakdown at the hotel just in like an, I'm overwhelmed. I'm really tired. I need to go to bed. And I, around midnight, there was like a weird noise and I found out someone had set my my alarm clock to auto. So it just always went off at midnight. So I shut that off. So no big deal. Mm-hmm. So I'm in bed and I'm like, here we go. I'm exhausted. This is going to be great. And then 1.30, this really loud hum starts. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on. And I'm like, it's something. It's weird. So then I'm like, oh, my God, is it me? Is it me? Is it something in my room? Because last time... It was the alarm clock, right? So I'm like, it's got to, is it me? And so I'm like wandering around the room and I'm like, no, I, I think it's coming from outside. I can't tell. So at this point, you start to think you're going a little crazy. Because yeah. you're like, there's a noise. Am I the only one who hears the noise? So then I would record videos on my phone. But if I try to hear it back, the hum is so loud. I can't tell if it's on my phone or not. So then I'm like, is it on my phone? Am I, is it just in my head? And so then I'm like, I'm losing it. I'm losing it. So then it, it dies off. And I'm like, oh. Oh, there we go. And then silence. And then the hum starts up again. And it was like, this is this is going crazy. And then I was like, this this can't be real. Like someone around me is hearing this and is going to complain. I'm sure of it. So eventually I fall asleep and I wake up and I'm like, oh, thank God it's done. No, no, my brain just got used to it. It's still there. So then I was like, okay, I swore that I heard like washer and dryer sounds. So I'm like, you know what? I bet. I'm near the laundry. Sure. And I'm just hearing the washer and dryer. Yeah. H- how many loads could they do? Wow. So I'm like, <laughs> in I've a hotel? Yeah. <laughs> I'd say yeah. close to endless. 
Yep. Yep. So then I start thinking like, like all the day goes by and all of a sudden I'm like, okay, you know what? I've now been hearing this sound pretty constantly for 22 hours. I need to investigate further. So then I realize I also have a series of videos of me with this yeah. trying to detect this noise. Mm -hmm. So then I realize it gets louder when you're in the bathroom. So I go in the bathroom and I'm like, it is so loud in here. Like it's insane. And I use the bathroom and then I wash my hands and I notice as I'm washing my hands, the sound is gone. And I'm like, oh my God. So I turn off the tap and as I'm turning off the tap, the hum starts and I'm like, wait a minute. So it's the water pipes in the wall of my bathroom that are making this god-awful noise? So, long story short, the two, after 22 hours, the humming stopped, but then the next two and a half days was water trickling <laughs> because it's I had to leave the tap on just a bit. Wasting water, yes. Saving my <laughs> mental health. <laughs> Correct. I'm sure I peed way more in that time. Sure. Oh it was it was more white noise machine compared to that humming that was just making me think like this is it. This is an experiment and I'm failing. Like I they're putting something in the food. Like that was my moment of like they're drugging me. They're doing something to get hallucinations. Mm -hmm. Is this what peyote's like? Like I was not well. So thank god that sound stopped and i was willing to waste a little bit of their water to uh make that happen but that was the true joke i ha even took a video of myself like you can hear the hum and then i start the water and the hum goes away and then i turn the tap off and the hum continues so it was definitely something about those pipes it should also be noted that she sent me some yeah. of these videos and i was <laughs> like can you request a new room like this doesn't feel like any way someone is supposed to live and then she reminded me that because of the very strict quarantine rules once you're in you're in you can't get a new room and that feels wrong to me it's it was yeah. at one point i said to her like hey I know you're in the hotel and and uh you know I know we we don't have um you know you haven't researched the staircase episode yet but do you want to do a patreon episode or something like should we record something and Christy was like well we can try but the humming and I'm like what do you mean the humming and then she sent me these videos and I'm sure we'll post them on Instagram so you you all can get a real kind of feel for what she was living with but it was so loud in my mind I was like how loud could it be is it just like a gentle background no it it was horrifying I commend you because I really think I may have thrown myself out of that window as my final experience with a window you know what I mean I debated about it, but I it wasn't far enough down to do damage. <laughs> oh God! God. Wow. Yeah, it was just it was just a lot. But you know what? I, I I got through, and it was fine. And then I like just leaving there and not hearing the sound anymore. That was definitely the moment where I was like, "Wow, it has really been plaguing me," and I didn't even realize how much. Uh, and then it was fine. And then I uh, got to the airport to fly home, and what a joke, blizzard at home. <laughs> For those of you who have forgotten, when she left Saskatchewan, there was a blizzard that was so bad that it was closing highways and there was a chance she may not make mm -hmm. it here. Yeah. Spoiler alert, same thing happened on her way home, which feels yeah. impossible because it was nice in between, right? 
It was. The snow all melted. Everything was fine. They were having spring-like temperatures. And then the day before the snow started and my husband would send me photos every once in a while just to show me like outside the snow building up. And I was like, but it's going to be fine, right? And he's like, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. Well, then it like melted enough so it was wet and then it got cold enough that it froze and then the highways closed down for like a day and a half to the point where I got on the flight and was like, just so you know, here is a link to the hotel that I will book for myself when I land if I can't get home because it's not as simple as just go from the airport to my house because I live in a different city than the airport. Right. So I have to drive on a highway to get home. So it's like, well, if it's too dangerous and you can't get here, I'll just spend a night in a different hotel and then you can pick me up tomorrow. I got on the flight not knowing if I was getting picked up or if I was going to have to book another hotel. But bless my husband's heart. He was like, no, there's no way I'm letting you stay away from home another day. It took a while to get there and then it took us a while to get home. Uh, the roads were not good. We they They had opened, but it was recommended you don't travel. Of course. But But he was like... I'm going to travel anyway. Uh, and he did get us home safely. And I immediately came home and just came to this room, which was lovingly set up. He moved a lot of things around. I was expecting a mattress on the floor, like a kidnap victim. But it's like full box spring and everything. Like it's raised from the floor. It's great. I'm constantly surrounded by cats. He's got my like little workspace. I've got like a, a closet, which is basically just my suitcase which has been destroyed by the different airlines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just 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 destroyed. I have to throw it out. But it's just been a real real experience and then there's this like plastic sheeting in between because he's like I was going to put a blanket up but he's like I thought the plastic sheeting we could at least see each other and I have hugged my children through the plastic sheeting. They call it plastic hugs. <laughs> <laughs> that is horrifyingly depressing. It's not a clever name, but bless their hearts. I also just uh, want to say very quickly, you're you're living in the last 15 minutes of E.T., which is my biggest nightmare. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's been it's been a real a real treat. And the it's, good it's news weird. is, is there's seven more days of this, dear listeners, from the time of this yeah. recording. She still has seven more days of plastic hugs and not knowing what time of day it is. Bless your heart for doing it. Well, we're yeah. all grateful to you. I'll say that. I'll say that. And uh, we're, we're grateful for the things that we've released to the public thus far. But there's also, of course, very exciting true crime and cocktails things coming that were achieved while Christy was down here. But we mm -hmm. just aren't allowed to talk about yet. So as always, stay tuned for that. Wow. What a journey. What a journey. <laughs> for those of you wondering, I'm back on the Cutwater margaritas because i think this is now my personal palm bay i've been getting a lot of messages oh. from people about these a lot of good feedback and you know i've been messaging them too hopefully you know we'll see what happens we'll see what happens i As would always. like to look into some more of the Cutwater family i've also been branching out into the uh tequila palomas now it's uh <laughs> with a grapefruit juice and a, a light carbonation Ooh. they're they're good too but it's it's these for me it's these for me. Blackout yeah. surprise. Just drink <laughs> drink three of these and call me in the morning. You know what I'm saying? Good luck. 
that's a California yeah. break right there, break from reality. Now, the only other thing I wanted to mention very quickly, I have no real news like you do. You've got a, a whole story to tell, but um, I was setting up tonight for the record, and we had had to move all of my record stuff out of the room where I normally record, and my sweet boyfriend goes, wait a minute, before you start, your gavel's in the box. <laughs> I was like, thank you, yes, I always need to preset the gavel just in case Judge Ash has to come out. But I like that he knew that, and I like that he knew where it was, and I like that he ensured that it was preset for this record. So, judgment in terms of the plaintiff, my boyfriend, and uh, you're charged with excessive cuteness. <laughs> guilty. I find you guilty. I, I'm i on board with that judgment completely. I I love that he knows how much it means. Yeah. And Me I too. love that he was like, well, we gotta, you gotta stay consistent. And that's the other thing. He's a continuity guy. He is. And better to have it and not need it than need it. Uh, they need it and not have it, right? Because then it's like, yes. what's going to happen if we're talking about this case tonight and then I hear something and I'm like, oh my God, you disrespect the child, you're done. And I can't do, I can't punctuate it. That's not a world I want to live in. Not no, it's second. like a room without windows. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the last 10 minutes of ET. Yeah. It's a nightmare. <laughs> oh gosh. Uh, Listen, yeah. let's get into it. They're all dying for it. This is a case that we have had requested a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. So we are excited, excited to tell you about it. Now, I watched this, I think, quite a few years ago now. I'm not sure when when the documentary first came out the first time, uh, but I have not revisited. So I am very excited to hear all of the things that Christy has discovered, all of the new information, and also just to hear her opinions because, you know, you're my best gal and I count your opinion higher than anybody's, especially about this stuff. So let's get into it. We're talking, of course, about the staircase. I don't know why I'm getting into this voice. Because you you're setting a tone. You're right. Here and we- I could not be in- more in love with your uh, acting choices. Thank you very much. Here we go. Always. Here it comes. Mm-hmm. In December 2001, 48-year-old Kathleen Peterson was found dead in her North Carolina home. Her husband, Michael Peterson, claims that Kathleen fell down the stairs, but police officers on the scene claimed there was too much blood for a simple fall. During the investigation, police discovered that Kathleen and Michael's marriage wasn't as perfect as Michael had claimed. So what really happened to Kathleen Peterson? Was it an accidental stumble? An attack from an unknown intruder? And why is Kathleen the second woman connected to Michael who has died at the bottom of a staircase? Nice. <laughs> I finished nice. hard. You know what I mean? I I think you made a choice and it was the right one. Thank you very much. See, now we have to use it excessively yep. well, that's to show him in this that we need it. Yep. Well, Absolutely. I'm here for it. Absolutely. I'm always here for Judge Ash. Always. Oh, thank you very much. All right. So, my goodness, I know that there's a lot to get through because this is a multi, multi-part documentary on Netflix. And I believe that they had yeah. released it as a multi-part documentary. And then when there was a lot of attention around it, they released more parts. So I know that this is there's a lot for us to get through. So, again, let's dive into it let's start with the victim Kathleen Peterson give me what you got I do want to start briefly I just want to give a small warning okay this case just fully enraged me Mm. and there are a lot of reasons why and we will get into them but it's partially because the documentary was so 
long. Mm. New new things happened and they filmed new episodes, which is why I think they added more. But did it need to be 13 episodes? The answer is no. Mm. (laughs) But that's the choice they made. And also, guilty or not, I can't stand the sight of his face and watching him be joyful and laughing throughout the most of this just really irritated me. I'm also just like... A little bit punchy tonight. Oh, so great. So buckle up, folks, because this is going to get weird. I can't <laughs> wait. Oh, I'm on board. Uh, it was also my first time doing from like start to finish research in quarantine. So I feel like I've just lived with it a lot longer mm. than I normally have. And I mean, I watched a second because the 13 episodes weren't enough. I watched another three-episode documentary and then a Lifetime movie just for giggles. So, Wowzer. It is what it is. So, we start with Kathleen Hunt, born February 21st, 1953 in Greensboro, North Carolina. She was the first high school student to take college-level Latin classes at Franklin and Marshall College, and she was the valedictorian of her high school. Kathleen was described as hardworking, kind, confident, spontaneous, fun, and generous. Everyone who knew her always brought up her tremendous sense of humor. As noted before, Kathleen was incredibly smart. In 1971, Kathleen was the first female student accepted into Duke University's engineering school. She later received a Bachelor of Science degree in civil engineering and a Master's in mechanical engineering from Duke. At the time of her death, Kathleen was the senior vice president at the telecommunications company Nortel. While at Duke University, Kathleen met a member of the physics department named Fred Atwater. The two married in 1977 and after some struggles with infertility, uh, gave birth to Caitlin in April of 1982. Kathleen then discovered that Fred was cheating on her, so they separated and officially divorced in 1985. Please, folks, put a pin in Kathleen's zero tolerance towards cheating spouses. Mm, I like this already. That intrigue will intrigue. come up. I'm going to intrigue out the ass on this one, I'm telling you that. Mm-hmm. Don't even fully know what that means. I am mentally on another planet. <laughs> I wrote so. down zero tolerance, and I'm certain I spelt it incorrectly. <laughs> Hey, I full I trust that you spelled it right. I don't think I did. Okay, we don't have to show the people. Thank you. It's okay. Thank you, Cutwater. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing their best. Mm-hmm. So the Peterson family, there are a lot of people. There's gonna be a lot of names. I chose not to bring up their uh, middle names because some of them get confusing some of them overlap so we're just going to go with first names and I'm going to do my best to try and keep everybody fairly straight so we've got Michael born October 1943 Michael Peterson joined the Marines and served in Vietnam and Japan in the late 1960s he would later write three novels loosely based on his experiences in Vietnam which made some refer to Michael as a Tom Clancy wannabe He also worked as a newspaper columnist for the Durham Herald Sun, where his columns came to be known for their criticism of Durham County Police and District Attorney James Harden Jr., who would later be the prosecutor when Michael goes to court 
but that's something later in our story. Ooh. In in 1966, Michael marries Patricia Peterson. They moved to Germany where Patricia, a.k.a. Patty, would teach and Michael went to Vietnam with the Marines. The couple had two sons, Clayton in December 1974 and Todd in March 1976. We're gonna get into those boys later because squeaky clean they are not. Yes, <laughs> I like the sounds of that. Uh, while living in Germany, the Peterson family were close with George and Elizabeth Ratliff. The Ratliffs had two daughters, Margaret in December 1981 and Martha in January 1983. I'm also realizing now that Evie is snoring and I'm hoping that my microphone isn't picking it up. But if it is, I haven't heard it. That's, that's my cat. It's just so loud, which is now taking me back to the hum in the hotel. Was I hearing it myself? You know what? No, I've I heard the videos. I, I've heard the videos. I can't, I can't mentally go back, but that's the joke. Her snoring used to be endearing to me, and now I'm like, the hum has returned. <laughs> so, so that's where I'm at. Yeah. Full nut job. No, it's not great. Uh, it's not great. <laughs> October 1983, George Ratliff dies. Again, we're going to get into that later on. Mm. November 25th, 1985, Elizabeth dies. The medical examiner considers it natural causes, and since her will stated that Elizabeth wanted Michael and Patty to care for her daughters, Michael gained guardianship of the girls. They've said from the beginning, it's these are the girls he adopted. Best of my understanding, he never officially adopted them. He's ju he's just has a guardianship with them, or over them, or however that works. Needless to say, he is seen as their father, one way or the other, sure. however it works out. So problems started in the Peterson marriage shortly after Elizabeth died. Michael moved back to North Carolina and took Margaret and Martha with him. Clayton and Todd chose to stay in Germany with their mother, Patty, but then they too later moved to North Carolina to live with their father. Patty has since retired and moved to North Carolina and is a very big supporter of Michael's for reasons I can't fully understand, but again, we'll get into that. 1986, Kathleen meets Michael. Their daughters are friends and they lived only about a block apart. Michael and Patty officially divorced in 1987. Michael stated in one of his books that he and Kathleen went to each other for solace and sex. Direct quote, but our longing and lust soon turned to love, for we found in each other what we'd been missing and desperately wanted. Closeness, joy, and fun. Meow, meow. Yeah. <laughs> Michael and Kathleen move in together in 1989 and in 1992 bought their dream home at 1810 Cedar Street in the Forest Hill areas of Durham, North Carolina. Now, Hollywood fun fact. I have a couple of fun facts throughout this. I've given them each a different name because I'm a crazy person today. I love it. Yeah. The house in question was used as a location in the 1990 movie The Handmaid's Tale. Huh. Star starring Faye Dunaway, Natasha Richardson, Robert Duvall, Aidan Quinn, and Elizabeth McGovern, a.k.a. Cora Crowley on uh, Downton Abbey. Oh, 
I found that fascinating, even though that happened before they bought the house. It was it was a good enough house. They used it in a in a movie. Yeah. So, you know, I also like that. I mentioned this to my husband, the name that caught him. He was like, ah, Natasha Richardson, Natasha Richardson. Who is she? Now, that was my moment to be like, oh, she was in the new Parent Trap or she was in Made in Manhattan or like any of the numerous movies she's done. I could have mentioned all the stage work she did. I think she was like Streetcar Named Desire and there were a bunch of other plays she had done. I could have mentioned any of that. Sure. But what did I do? And angrily, I might add. Yeah. I just went, Natasha Richardson? As in the wife of Liam Neeson who died after an accident on a ski slope and he never got over it? <laughs> Natasha Richardson? <laughs> Again, I'm I'm an unwell woman. <laughs> Listen, I, I know that we don't know yeah. Liam personally and yeah. we can't really like you know, begin to speculate on whether yeah. or not he got over the death of her, but I like to believe he didn't either. Oh, I believe just once your soulmate is taken, that's it. I did my best to take in uh, Liam you, Neeson. You really went for it, and I, I appreciate I, that. Uh, yeah, because to me, he will forever be love, actually, right? So even though he moves on, <laughs> I guess in my mind, he's love, actually, who didn't move on. Got it. I don't know why. He may have moved on, but in any interview I've seen where he mentions her, he is still just barely living with it. Yes, yeah, For some I'm, reason, I'm just... I'm one of those people who... If I pass, I don't want uh -oh. my partner to find love again. <laughs> and people I... say that's terrible, Lauren. That's awful. And I'm just like, well. <laughs> I have openly said to my husband, I look forward to you dying alone. <laughs> uh, I just, do I want him to be happy? Obviously. But then of there's course. that part of me that's like. I'm gonna I'm gonna haunt that woman's dreams like she's just I'm just always gonna be there yeah you hear that you hear that humming noise bitch <laughs> me you oh my gosh maybe somebody's somebody's unfortunately past spouse was in the wrong room <laughs> instantly I'm like god what did I do wrong if it was gonna be a ghost couldn't it be like somebody fun like Jonathan Brandis <laughs> Well, sometimes they get lost, though. We've talked about this on this show before. Yes, you're right. You're so, right. Look, I think Jonathan Brandis is just in my brain because I recently found a photo of a room from when I was a preteen, and I have an embarrassing shrine where it's like there's a cute one wall is covered in cute puppy and kitten pictures. Sure. And then one wall is just everything I could find that says Jonathan Brandis. It was horrifying i may post it but i may be too embarrassed to you're in a safe space that hollywood fun fact took a turn so sorry so that was yourself. my fault that was no, my fault no. I, I truthfully like honestly i got excited about the fun fact <laughs> <laughs> and i like audience participation so, thank you very much you know yes it, it works out all right so something that i find interesting uh later in our story after the suspicious death of Kathleen, Michael takes such great offense to the fact that the press continued to refer to their home as a mansion. Hmm. He felt, and these are his exact words, he felt felt it was, quote, cruel. Mm. So is it the biggest house I've ever seen? No. But 
The house is over 10,000 square feet, has 19 rooms, including a library, a master bedroom wing, and a guest family wing, sits on four acres. Cut the shit, Michael. It's a mansion. (laughs) Michael, you live in a mansion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So sorry, sir, but you live in a mansion. Yeah, I don't know why he took great offense to it. And I don't know if it's because in his mind it made him look, you know, it's like, oh, look at these rich people in their mansion. Like, it. he took it in a negative way. However, like, and this will come up later, he really likes to, like, brag about the money that, mm. spoiler alert, they don't have. Oh, here we go. And so it's just amazing to me that he can be like, oh, so my Porsche... But yet someone mentions a mansion and he's like, that is incorrect, sir. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, I will that. say that somebody did refer somebody who had been to my home mm-hmm. did refer to my house as a mansion. And while I was like, maybe they mean it as a compliment. I was like, it is a three bedroom bungalow. <laughs> like, it's a great house. I love the house. I, I'm very blessed to live in this house. But I was like, are we calling this a mansion? 19 bedrooms. That's a mansion. Yeah. <laughs> You say a house. I've now, as someone who's lived in it, I call it a home. <laughs> well, it feels like home to me. Thank you very much. All comes back. Yep. All right, that's interesting. Oh, that's an interesting Lord. tidbit. Yeah. I like that. That 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 definitely bumps it's, me too. That's an interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're living in this mansion that he refuses to call a mansion. Yeah. We've got Kathleen. We've got Michael. They get married in 1997. There is uh, Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin. There is Michael's two guardianship adopted daughters, Margaret and Martha. Yes. And then we've got Michael's sons, Clayton and Todd. Right. All living this beautiful life, this perfect little happy family. Friends say Michael and Kathleen had an idyllic marriage because they never fought. Mm. The kids said that Michael and Kathleen were, quote, so good together. Yeah, spoiler alert, folks. Anyone who's married that's like, oh, my God, my spouse and I never fight. Fuck you, you lion. Because everybody, even married or not. Yep. Anybody who lives with a partner. Mm hmm. There is no chance that there's never a fight. And I'm sure there are some people who are like, we barely fight about anything. It's like, ah. But you still have fights about something. You know? And the other thing that I would like, love to throw in as I throw on my therapist cap for a second mm-hmm. is that there's also a school of thought that if that's true, if there is a couple, let's say, that that is legitimately never fighting, then there is a reason. Then people are withholding. Then people are holding things in. They're not voicing their opinions or feelings or thoughts. And those can be ticking time bombs. So I offer that as well. Well, something, I don't know how much this goes with it. One of the daughters, Martha, was asked about the parents' relationship. And she said, quote, Mike and Kathleen didn't fight usually. It was beautiful. The interviewer stopped her and went, oh, you said usually. And she got this look on her face like she had said something wrong and just went, oh, I, I did I? Like she was terrified. So that was my moment of like, that feels like someone's been coached and she realizes Mm -hmm. she made a mistake. Yep, there it is. So when asked how old she was when her mother died, Martha's immediate response was in reference to Kathleen, not her birth mother. 
So that to me just shows just how close the girls were with Kathleen when in their minds you talking about you're talking mom it's obviously Kathleen as opposed to the their birth mother who died when they were like two and four years old right so they they said they don't really have memories of her and I'm just my whole reason for pointing it out is just I want to show the the closeness that the girls had with Kathleen she was their mother essentially not to mention Margaret said quote Kathleen was really the first person who took us in and combed our hair. Now, I assume she means woman, because at this point, Michael had been raising them for a couple of years on his own, but also they lived with Patty for about a year. And it's like, was there, is that what drove Michael and Patty apart? I don't know. Whatever it is, they're back to, they're not together, but... Kathleen is def or Kathleen Patty is definitely in Michael's corner. Right. And I can't fully figure out why, but you know we'll get there. Mm. So we're gonna get into the crime. We're kind of gonna go a little. We're gonna go for it, and then we're gonna just take a step back. It'll make sense, I promise. Yep. So two forty eight a.m. on December 9th, two thousand one. EMS first responders arrive at the home of Michael and Kathleen Peterson and find Kathleen lying in a pool of blood at the bottom of a flight of stairs. There was blood all over the walls, soaked through most of her clothing. It was gruesome. Mm. I will post some of the photos on our virtual case file at truecrimeandcocktails.com. But fair warning, some of them are really brutal. There are photos of like her dead body just there. Mm. which they showed in court, which I would have been horrified, says the woman who does this for a living. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, that's where I'm at. Sure. You you know it's time to turn it in when you're not, uh, when you're feeling a little desensitized to it. So when you're still horrified, continue on. Absolutely. EMS uh, ask Michael what happened. He tells them he stepped outside briefly to turn the lights off at the pool area. And when he came back in, he found Kathleen just at the bottom of the stairs. He assumed she had fallen. EMS noted that the blood on the walls, floor, and stairs was dry. And that doesn't happen in a few minutes. Especially since he claimed he was only outside for a few minutes. Which brings us to a science fun fact. (laughs) Oh, this is... I'm... This is the best. (laughs) So depending on the temperature inside the house, a drop of blood on a hard surface would take approximately 60 minutes to dry. At this point, Michael is claiming he was outside a matter of minutes and the ambulance arrived less than 10 minutes after he called. So there's no way he walked in, saw this, and then suddenly it's all dry before they actually show up. Mm. So the timeline is already off, but don't worry. He will muck with our timeline once again. So now that we've established that approximately when she was found, that sort of thing, I want to just jump back to earlier in the evening of Saturday, December 8th. Now, the majority of this is according to Michael, because he is the only person who was there for the whole thing. So we're kind of trusting a lot of what he says, but we don't trust it all. (laughs) According to Michael, he and Kathleen had gone to a party the night before, so this night they just wanted to rent a movie and stay home. Michael went to Blockbuster and rented America's Sweethearts at 6.59pm. Now, Michael later writes a book about this whole thing, and he continues to call the movie 
American sweethearts. And I know he's grieving. This is not a big deal. But if you're going to write a book about something, do your goddamn research. A quick Google would have let him know the correct name of it. Uh, I don't care if he remembered the exact title or not. I just, if you're going to present the facts, present them properly. Also, where's his editor? Mm, well, <laughs> not their editor anymore, I guess. <laughs> he also does that classic older generations thing where he puts an S on the end of a business that doesn't need to be there. He keeps referring to it as blockbusters. And I know some who it's like, we all have that relative where it's, they're going to just head over to Safeways. They got to go hit up Costco's. Like there's always, there's a certain, once you hit a certain age, an S goes on the end and it's not supposed to be there. And I find it slightly charming. Yeah. But neither here nor there. So Michael claims Kathleen cooked dinner and that the movie ended around 11 p.m. And they left their plates on the table by the TV and took their glasses to the kitchen. He also claims they went outside for, quote, a fair amount of time and sat by the pool just drinking and talking. Michael claims they went through two bottles of wine and also some champagne as they were celebrating a Hollywood producer showing interest in the film rights to one of Michael's novels. At 11.08 p.m., Kathleen receives a call from her co-worker, Helen Prislinger, who promises to email Kathleen information that Kathleen needs for a, a conference call the following morning. Michael claims this call happened closer to midnight, but we have phone records and Helen, uh, who I don't know or have read nothing about, but trust her way more than I trust Michael, who gives us 1108. But I just feel already like Michael is just not the best with times. Okay. But, you know, that could also just be, he could also just be playing me. So that I think he's not great with time. So I, you know, again, sure. I, I don't trust him. That's just who I am. Anyhow. So Helen's email arrives at 1153 p.m., but the attachment is never opened. There is no evidence on whether that email was ever read or not. Mm. Helen would later testify that Kathleen was expecting the email from her that night and she had it sent to Michael Peterson's email address. We know that Kathleen left her laptop at work, so maybe it was a thing of you can't access work email on a computer that's not a work computer. I don't know. But for some reason, she specifically had it sent to Michael's address, which I found really interesting. So Helen also stated that Kathleen did not sound intoxicated to her or abnormal in any way, nor did she sense any anger between Kathleen and Michael. At one point, Kathleen asked Michael for the home email address. Now remember, when EMS first arrived, Michael claimed he stepped outside for a brief moment, came back in, found his wife dead. Right. Well, after a discussion with his lawyers, he then claims around midnight, Michael and Kathleen decided to take their drinks outside near the pool. And then around 1 a.m., Kathleen went into the house because she had this early conference call the next day, and Michael stayed outside for about 45 minutes before coming in. So it's amazing to me how quickly his story changed Yeah, based on the fact that EMS are like, wait a minute, the blood was dry. That would not have happened that fast. And he was like, oh, you know what? Yeah, I was outside longer. So great mm. point. Great point. Yeah. 
At 2.40 a.m., Michael frantically calls 911. He says, quote, my wife had an accident. She is still breathing. When asked about the accident, Michael says that Kathleen fell down the stairs and once again adds, she is still breathing. Michael was asked how many stairs she had fallen down, but he just can't seem to focus on the question. He never said a single thing about blood. Then he hung up, which could it have been just the chaos of the moment and he was frantic? Sure. Sure. I just, I know for me personally, if I come in and see just a bloodbath, I'm going to be screaming something like, there's just so much blood, you know, or something like that. But you know yeah. what? His his wife, is he's going through a traumatic thing. I'll let that go. Sure. I won't let blockbusters go, but I'll let that go. I get it. I'll let it go for now. Very quickly, Michael's story was that Kathleen went inside around 1 a.m. And he stayed out for about 45 minutes and then found her. But he didn't call 911 until 2.40. So he came inside and dicked around for an hour before he called 911. So again... Get your story straight, Michael. Uh, so Michael calls 911 again at 2.46 a.m. saying, quote, where are they? She's not breathing. Please, please, would you hurry up? After a few moments, once again, he hangs up. EMS arrives at 2.48 a.m. around the same time as Michael's son Todd and his girlfriend Christine Tomasetti come as they were coming home from a party. Quick aside, Christine is the woman uh, who the Peterson family referred to as Todd's girlfriend, who's just actually married to someone else at the time. What? Yeah. She's not even pivotal to this story. I was just pointing out that this family just... You know, I dated a guy once, and he used to refer to his female friends as his girlfriends, and I had to explain to him why you can't do that and how it's confusing and also borderline inappropriate. And it was completely... Like, he was completely like, what? I wonder if it's just like that. If this is like another Costco's situation where it's like, it's his girlfriend, but like not. I don't know. I did read something. I didn't put it in my notes because I didn't know how accurate it was. I did read something where uh, Todd had told people he planned to have sex with Christine that night. Okay. Forget what I said. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, again, who knows? But. It is what it is. It's not even the point that she's married. It was just the point of like, oh, well, that feels shady. And Mm -hmm. uh, cheating just maybe runs in the family. Checks out. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Oh, boy. It was said somewhere. And in this moment, I can't remember where. But it was said that between the two calls to 911 that Michael called his son Todd. I'm curious if he did or not. Because if he did, Todd gets to the house and he says to the police or the EMS, rather, because they were there first, quote, my first thought, of course, was my dad had a heart attack. He was a little older than Kathleen, so when I ran in there and saw my dad alive, I was, quite honestly, a little relieved. Wouldn't be my first thought walking into a bloodbath, but neither here nor there. Also, not something that is relevant to share, even to police. Mm-hmm. Like, there, that does not, that's not a relevant piece of information. Yeah. Uh, you're not gonna like Todd. Great. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Yeah. And just, just, you know, just setting you up now just to, yeah. just so you know. Keep my standards low. I gotcha. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it should be noted that Christine told police she arrived at the house at 9.45 p.m. to pick Todd up for this party. She said she saw Kathleen alive and well and enjoying some wine. Todd and Christine left at 10.20 p.m. 
According to Michael, Todd and his girlfriend stopped by around 1030. So I think we've established that Michael is just a terrible witness. <laughs> Regardless. Yeah. Or this is the game he's playing. Yeah. I can't tell. So at this point, police detectives start arriving shortly after 3 a.m. Now, again, this scene was brutal. Like there was so much blood. Right. Um, just everywhere, including nine and a half feet up the wall. Wow. Officers noted that blood appeared to have been cleaned off of a step near the body. Candace Zamperini, who is Kathleen's sister, said that she tried to clean the blood off the walls the next day, but couldn't due to just the sheer amount of it. Blood drops were found on kitchen cabinets, on papers in the office that was about 60 feet from where the body was found, and a small drop was found on the porch 50 feet from the body. There was also a small amount of blood on the front door. Blood smears were found on Michael's shorts, including blood drops that were on the inseam of his shorts. He, the EMS did say when they found him, he was cradling her body. But I'm just curious how the blood drops. So I get the smears of blood. But how did specifically blood drops get on the, like, inside the inseam i don't know the point is that's the smallest little thing you question in this entire case absolutely so kathleen was found on her back yet on the back of her pants there was a bloody shoe print which exactly matched the shoes that michael was wearing that night which he had taken off and just left next to the body uh but how does your shoe print Get on the back of pants unless you, like, pushed someone with your foot from behind. The The term swift kick comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Also found next to the body, Kathleen's flip-flops, Michael's glasses, Michael's socks, multiple towels, and a roll of paper towels. So I guess he tried to stop the bleeding on his own and then just, like, took off his socks and shoes at one point. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was evidence that Michael had attempted to clean the crime scene. I just want to know who even considers that in the moment. Like, I understand no. you get like a towel or you get something to stop the bleeding on the victim. I don't understand starting to wipe it off the stairs. And he obviously wiped it in the kitchen because we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Police also found a used condom in the master bedroom, and Michael claimed he never used condoms with Kathleen. It came out that they claim it belonged to a friend of Todd's who had sex in the room a few weeks ago when Todd had a party while Kathleen and Michael were away. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yep. Oh. Yep. It just, it just, it just keeps getting better. Yeah. Another thing to note quickly, Michael referred to himself as, quote, near comatose in the hours after Kathleen's death. He said the police had ordered him to stay in the office while they did a preliminary search of the house. At this point, Michael said he was, quote, too distraught to notice much of anything. Of course, you find your wife in a pool of blood. It's very traumatic. Just my question, and I know everyone grieves in their own way. But, Michael, were you near comatose or were you logged onto your computer going through emails? 
uh, because according to your computer, you were logged on between 4.15 and 5 a.m., an hour after police put you in your office. Again, I get that everyone grieves differently. Sure. But can we just agree that this is odd? Yeah. Especially when, and again, this will come up later, the day after Michael deleted hundreds of files from that computer? Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michael complained about the police from day one. He said that they were treated brutally. He claimed that there were pages missing from the police search warrant and went so far as to compare the police to the Gestapo. <laughs> Jesus. Mm-hmm. There was some bad blood there because when Michael used to write columns for the newspaper, he spent a lot of it being negative about the police and saying basically they weren't doing their jobs properly. Right. So 11 days after Kathleen's murder, Michael was arrested for first-degree murder and released on $850,000 bond. The house was worth over a million, so they just kind of used it as collateral. So now... Kathleen had multiple lacerations and contusions to her scalp. There were seven large lacerations so deep that they went all the way down to her scalp. There were contusions on her back, arms, wrists, and hands, kind of like maybe a defensive wound of some sort, and multiple small abrasions and contusions on her face. There were, however, no skull fractures, no edema, which is essentially just swelling, and no blood on the brain, and no rib or hand fractures, which is interesting for someone who potentially fell down the stairs to not have any fractures of any kind. Uh, nothing seemed consistent with a fall down the stairs, not to mention the fact that when Kathleen was found, her neck and spine were completely aligned perfectly, which again is not something you usually find for someone who has just fallen down the stairs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was the concern that this fall happened because Kathleen had been drinking heavily. For example, our dear friend Todd said, quote, If you want my opinion, they were probably shit-faced and she fell. Huh. Class, Class act. Class act. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yep. Well, Todd, Kathleen's blood alcohol level was 0.07%. So shit-faced, she was not. According to the blood alcohol chart that I found online and will post for everyone to enjoy. Please do. Based on her weight to have 0.07 in her system, she would have consumed one to two drinks. So that also doesn't add up with the two bottles of wine as well as some champagne story that we've been getting either. That's my girl. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was also the presence of red neurons in Kathleen's brain. Red neurons indicate that the brain was deprived of oxygen, which means in order for those red neurons to develop, Kathleen would have been lying there for about two hours. So there's no way he was outside for even just 45 minutes and came in and happened to find her because it was at least two hours that she laid there. Up until this point... All five kids believe that Michael is innocent. Caitlin had even said, quote, My parents, Michael and Kathleen, had the most loving relationship ever. They were the most ideal parents. But once Kathleen or once Caitlin saw the autopsy photos, 
she immediately turned and went to team Michael is guilty as hell. Mm. And she remained that way to this day. So, Michael is arrested, out on bond. Michael then receives some money from Kathleen's work insurance, and he uses it to hire defense attorney David Rudolph. I know David is good at his job, but there is just something so slimy and smug about him that I just don't care for him. Uh, the trial started July 1st, 2003. There were a lot of bombshells revealed at this trial. For example, the suspicious death of Elizabeth Ratliff, Margaret and Martha's biological mother. Right. Now we're getting, now we're getting to that point. That yes. sweet, sweet point in the podcast where I, all those moments where I was like, coming up later, it's later. <laughs> Elizabeth McKee and George Ratliff were very good friends with Michael and Patty Peterson. They met in Germany in 1973 and traveled throughout Europe together. Patty and Elizabeth taught at the same elementary school at the Air Force Base. They were such good friends, in fact, that Elizabeth was Clayton's godmother. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth and George married in 1981, and as I mentioned earlier, they had Margaret in 1981 and Martha in 1983. George was a captain in the Air Force and died in October 1983. Michael says George, quote, was the first casualty in the Grenada invasion. But then later says, no one knows for sure how George died. Some online have speculated poison, but Michael's theory is that George got a sunburn while running the day before his death, and that George had some sort of electrolyte imbalance from the sunburn and therefore died of a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And that's his official medical opinion, is it? Correct. Mm -hmm. uh, the joke is he hadn't even seen him for months because Michael or George was away with the Air Force. Are people so just dropping knows... dead as sunburns? Is this is it's... this something that happens? Yeah. Now, oh, I got to brace myself for this. Oh, no. Historical side note. <laughs> this isn't even a fun fact. This is a side note. You're right. You're right. That was inconsistent. But you're... Oh, no, I was just excited. <laughs> Michael's comment that George was the first casualty in the invasion of Grenada, Grenada, however we're saying that. 19 American soldiers died during that invasion. Despite Michael's initial claims, George Ratliff is not one of them. And you know how I know that? Because George died October 21st and the invasion happened October 25th. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That'll do so, her. Yep. So that's where it's at. November 24th, 1985, the night before Elizabeth dies, she has the Petersons over for dinner. Michael arrives late because he's always late coming home from the gym. This is something that Kathleen complains about for years and will come up again in our story. So when he arrives, Patty takes Todd and Clayton home to put them to bed. Michael stays to help... Elizabeth put the girls to bed, help with dishes, that sort of thing. Michael then follows Elizabeth to the mechanic so they can drop off her car and drives her home. The trip took approximately 45 minutes. Meanwhile, the two and four-year-old were 
left at home sleeping alone. <laughs> Why do we keep having cases where people leave toddlers in I rooms don't by know. themselves? I don't know. Yeah. Nothing good comes of uh, it. Also, no, can I, I mean, just say as a quick side yeah. note... Why yeah. wouldn't he go with his own children? Why why is he staying with the bereaved mother and her kids? There, why isn't the wife are, doing that? There are a lot of questions I, don't know. I have about that. I'm assuming it was like a because George died, he immediately was like, you know what? They need a father. I gotta step up and be the man, is what I'm guessing. Sure. So that's gotta cause some resentment in your own sons to be like, I'm passing you over for the daughters. And his wife. Oh, well, there's a reason why after Elizabeth dies, their marriage barely lasts and he leaves the country with the girls, not his sons. Oh, my God. Great point. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting off track. No. Keep going. No, I like this. I like questions because I need to know that you're informed. Thank you. That's all. I need to make sure I'm answering what you have. So Michael claims shortly after this mechanic drop off, Uh, That he goes home, and the next morning, Elizabeth's nanny, Barbara O'Hare, arrives to find Elizabeth at the bottom of a stairs, lying in a pool of blood. Barbara states the body is still warm. Unsure of what to do, Barbara runs a couple of doors down to the Peterson's house, and Patty follows her to the Ratliffs. Barbara walks over the body to check on the girls upstairs. They're still sleeping. Investigators found a bloody footprint on the stairs. They say it belonged to Barbara, who walked over her to check on the children, because, of course, she had that moment of, oh, my God, the children. Right. And the the children were fine. So Michael then arrives shortly later, uh, shortly after this is happening. Uh, He suggests we should cover the body. But Barbara says, oh, but she's still warm, to which Michael says, quote, oh, it's from the heated flooring. Again... Dr. Dr. Peterson. Yeah. Well, (laughs) yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. He said Elizabeth had a brain aneurysm. How? Again, how would he know this? He's a novelist. Who is this clown? Well, I think clown is the nice way to put it. Thank you very much. Mm. So uh, he also claims that prior to this, Elizabeth was having intense headaches and she suffered from Willebrand disease, which is a lifelong bleeding disorder in which your blood just doesn't clot very well. After any sort of injury, the bleeding would just be excessive. And according to the nanny Barbara, there was a lot of blood. But you know who didn't mention any blood? The police. Nothing in their report says anything about blood. Patty, even years later, says no blood whatsoever at the scene. Michael said there was a tiny spot of blood behind one of Elizabeth's ears. But everyone else involved in that who was there and people who have seen crime scene photos say there was blood everywhere. The nanny even said they spent weeks cleaning it up. That's weird. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing worth noting, Elizabeth's neighbor Karen Hamm claims that she saw Michael Peterson hurrying away from the Ratliff's house the night that Elizabeth died. In an interview with police, Karen said she heard a door slam, which made her look out her bedroom window around 12.50 a.m. When she looked outside, she saw Michael hurriedly leaving Elizabeth's home. Is this suspicious? Of course. 
But remember, when the nanny finds the body almost seven hours later, she says the body was still warm. Right. So I don't think something happened in that moment. Unless the unless the floors are heated. Unless he knew that because he killed her and that the floors kept her warm. That is a good point. Just saying. Police at the time declared Elizabeth's death a cerebral hemorrhage. The first investigators on the scene, the military police. Who might have pull with the military police? Could it be a decorated captain from the Marines? The Armed Force Institute of Pathology reviewed Elizabeth's case in 1986 and concluded she died of an intracranial hemorrhage and listed cause of death as natural. <laughs> Michael's thoughts on Elizabeth's death, and this, this is a quote. Liz had a stroke. She was unhappy, depressed, and unwell. Her death was natural, not a murder, not an accident. Can't even accept it as an accident, huh? <laughs> an a yeah. Like, like, if it was a fall down the stairs, wouldn't that be considered an accident as opposed to natural? Like, that's... Yeah, it's not to natural me. to fall down the stairs and die. Right? Yeah. When Elizabeth was found, the nanny Barbara called the German police and an ambulance. Michael called the military authorities. I'm sure this is a natural thing to do when you're in the military. It just felt... Like he was bringing in an ally to the scene to me. But again, I could be wrong. Uh, after Elizabeth's death, due to her will, Margaret and Martha went to live with Michael and Patty, which I also found interesting because Elizabeth had siblings who raised her. One of them was her sister named Margaret, who she named her daughter after. But Michael was the one specifically granted guardianship of the girls. So when the prosecution considered exhuming Elizabeth's body, Michael is beside himself, like so uppity, saying it would be devastating to the girls, traumatizing for them. He couldn't even believe someone would consider this. He just kept saying, I don't like it, and uh, repeatedly saying that it shouldn't happen for the girls' sake. He didn't like that her and George were being separated after being side by side for so many years. Like, he was upset about it. And yet... In his book, Michael has zero problems of the idea of Kathleen's body ever being exhumed if needed. <laughs> so why, what would you think would upset the girls more? Exhuming the body of their birth mother who they have no memory of or exhuming the body of the woman who raised them for 15 years? Right, you know, like, yeah. I just find it incredibly inconsistent, Michael. I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to turn, I think, a little bit. Elizabeth, I'm Elizabeth, Jesus. I'm going to turn a little bit, now I'm blanking on her name, Lucille Bluth. And I'm going to get a little uppity with Michael at some point as we go throughout this. First of all, may she rest. Second of all, oh. I'm here for it. Absolutely. Yeah. The joke is, I always thought maybe I was a little bit Michael Bluth, but the more life goes, the more I'm Lucille. Well, it makes sense because <laughs> I'm for sure Lucille too, because I, I, I get the dizzies. <laughs> regularly and you know this yeah this all feels right it feels this all right feels right feels right the prosecution got permission from elizabeth's mother and sister to exhume the body the body was transported from texas to north carolina where a new autopsy was done the me listed the cause of death as blunt force trauma and that elizabeth likely took multiple blows to the head while she was still alive 
So we have an eerily similar suspicious death in Michael's past. If for some reason he was responsible for it, and we aren't saying that he is, but even if he was, is that enough motive to kill Kathleen? Probably not. The documentary kept fo focusing on this idyllic relationship between Michael and Kathleen. So there is zero chance that the, he has any sort of motive, right? Well, dear listeners, he actually has two. <laughs> <laughs> That's two for one. Yeah. So first up, we've got a financial motive. Mm. Now, Michael was a best-selling novelist. However, by the end of 1999, Michael was no longer making any money as a writer. He worked as a columnist for the local paper, but gave it up when he ran for mayor in the fall of 1999. Narcissist. More on that, <laughs> more on that in a moment. I love that, uh, a, that a mayoral run. I'm, I'm writing down <laughs> narcissist, personality oh. disorder. I'm not saying it's, that every politician or mayor has a personality disorder, but continue. Kathleen made like a six-figure salary at her Nortel job. However, at the time, Kathleen was very stressed about the state of her job. Kathleen even told her sister Candace about it just prior to her death, saying she was worried about her job and the family's tight finances. Nortel was downsizing with the plan to lay off two-thirds of their employees, and just one week before Kathleen's death, she had to lay off her own supervisor. <laughs> oh, wow. So Michael even emailed a family friend six days before Kathleen's death saying, quote, poor Kathleen is going under uh, is undergoing the tortures of the damned at Ho at Nortel. They laid off 45,000 people. She's a survivor and in no trouble. But the stress is monumental there. But if Kathleen lost her job, that wouldn't be the worst because they were well off. Right. I mean, even the director of the documentary who spent years with Michael was asked and said, quote, to my knowledge, Michael Peterson had no financial difficulties. <laughs> However, in December 2001, Michael was broke as shit. Here we go. He owed over $100,000 to creditors and $78,000 in back taxes. Whoa. And... Michael's sons, Clayton and Todd, had $143,000 in credit card debt. We're talking interest payments of $1,000 owed every month. Woof. Michael was so concerned about this, he emailed his ex-wife, Patty, who is the mother of his sons, on November 29th, 2001, just over a week before Kathleen's death, urging Patty to take out a $30,000 home equity loan to help pay the credit card debt. In the email, Michael stated, quote, it is simply not possible for me to discuss this with Kathleen. When police seized Michael's computer after Kathleen's death, it was determined that Michael deleted 216 files the day before her death and 352 more files two days later. An expert was hired to recover some of these files some of these included the email of Michael asking Patty for money and another email from April 2001 where Michael had reached out to a paternal uncle of Margaret and Martha looking for help with their college tuition. No. Dur yeah. During the trial, agents with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation or 
SBI, uh, looked into Michael and Kathleen's finances and found the couple were spending about $100,000 more every year than they actually earned. Oh, my God. Talk about living above your means. Jeez. Mm -hmm. The defense team claimed the couple was well off, being worth more than $2 million. But during the trial, the prosecution pointed out that Kathleen was the sole owner of the house and the car, and that Kathleen had a $1.4 million life insurance policy. Shortly after Kathleen's death, Michael received nearly $400,000 in death benefits, from Nortel, which he used to hire defense attorneys. And those attorneys? Let's not forget, near the end of the trial, Michael had to file an affidavit of indigent... Ugh, fuck. <laughs> you were doing really good. I was doing great. You were on a roll. Um, uh, fuck. I don't even know if I can say this. Um, he was indigent, is how he pronounced it. Okay. I assume that's correct. Meaning he could just straight up no longer afford his attorney. So, so much for we were super well off. Right. There was not a lot of money there. They said there was more money than there was, but there wasn't. So I'm not saying he potentially killed her for his money, but the fact that the defense is like, oh, there was not a financial motive. They were financially drowning. So that could be a motive. But you know what? There may have been that motive. Could there have been other motives? And I'm glad you asked. Because Michael spent most of the documentary telling anyone who would listen that he had the best marriage around. His wife was his partner, the greatest woman he'd ever known, and just how happy they were. It's almost as though he didn't mention the fact that he'd been lying to her for years. <laughs> it comes out during the trial that Michael was, in fact, bisexual. Now, I don't care if he's bi gay, straight, whatever, I don't care. What I do care about is when he uses his sexual orientation as an excuse to cheat on his wife. A man named Dennis Rowe claimed he had sex with Michael Peterson during Michael's marriage, but there's no proof if they were ever together. We have nothing that proves it. When asked whether or not they had sex, Michael said, quote, absolutely not, absolutely 100% not, no, no, no. Now, on an unrelated note, I've read that liars tend to repeat words that they've already said in an attempt to emphasize their statement and potentially make the questioner change the subject. So I'm not saying that applies here, but I'm also not not saying that. <laughs> yeah. Maybe Michael didn't cheat. You know, we don't have the proof, right? Well, in 2001, Michael went on a website called Soldier Boy. Not to be confused with the R&B artist. <laughs> nope. Thank uh, you. He, be he began an email with 26-year-old escort Brad Special Soldier, whose real name is Brent Walgamot. Michael and Brad emailed for a few months with plans to meet for sex at the Peterson home in September 2001. However, Brad had to cancel at the last minute. Michael said, quote, I found Brad on an internet search of male escorts. He was exactly what I was looking for. Young, blonde, military, and attractive. In their emails, Michael said things like, quote, You have great reviews. I would like to get together. Quote, I've never done escort, but used to pay to fuck a super macho guy who played lacrosse. Quote, 
I've got a dynamite wife who I love. I'm sorry. I like men and women. I'm very bi and that's all there is to it. So not looking for more than just a, a, a good time. Listen, um, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack and I want to do it, but we got to take a break real quick before mm-hmm. we do because I need a new drink and I need to hit the restroom. So grab a drink, hit the loo. When we come back, we're going to get further, <laughs> deeper into all things The Staircase, all things Michael Peterson, and of course the unfortunate death of his wife, Kathleen Peterson, on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails, Famous Fatalities Edition. What's up, everybody? It's me, Lauren Ash, and I want to tell you a little bit about Green Chef. Green Chef is the first USDA-certified organic meal kit company, and there are so many different options. Whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, or just looking to change it up, there are recipes for any diet or dietary preference. Another cool thing is Green Chef is the most sustainable meal kit out there. They offset 100% of their direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box, so you can feel good not only about what you're eating, but also about how it got to your table. As for me, I don't have that much time to cook. Truthfully, I order delivery basically every night, but Green Chef comes pre-measured, perfectly portioned, and mostly prepped for you, so it really doesn't take that much time. So if you're like me and you're kind of getting sick of the delivery food, you want a nice home-cooked meal, this could be a good option for you too. So go to greenchef.com 90TCC and use code 90TCC to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash 90TCC and use code 90TCC to get $90 off, including free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. What's up, everybody? This is Lauren Ash, and I hope you're enjoying this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. A couple of quick reminders. If you're looking for any of the visuals Christy mentions in this or any of our episodes of the podcast, make sure to follow us at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram. There she posts a case file with all the relevant visuals for each episode of the show. If that's not enough for you, you want a little bit more, go to our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. There, Christy posts extensive virtual case files. This is literally everything she finds in her research it's a treasure trove of deep dives and it's all there for your enjoyment also on the website you can find our full unedited zoom episodes of the show if you'd like to watch rather than listen and make sure to give us a follow on facebook at true crime and cocktails twitter at not detectives and the most important piece of information if you like the show please wherever you listen to it give us a nice rating go on to apple leave us a nice review i know it sounds like a silly cliche but the truth is it really goes a long way in this crazy podcast world and your support means the world to us but enough about all that get yourself another drink sit back and enjoy the rest of the show Welcome back, everybody, to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails Famous Fatalities Edition. We are, of course, discussing The Staircase. And a bombshell dropped, obviously, just before the break, that, of course, Michael Peterson had been dabbling in some male escorts. Now, again, I want to preface what I'm about to say by saying, I think if you've listened to this show by now, you probably know that I would describe us as being sex positive, non-sex positive, yeah. whatever you want to do with your life, as long as it does not hurt anyone else or yourself, we feel great about that. But it does always raise alarm bells when people are withholding things. Now, I also understand that there is a, of course, cross-section of people that for many reasons feel that they are unable to live their true existence, their true identities, all of the above. And there is truly 
very few things in the world that that break my heart more because I I really do feel for people that don't feel that they have the support system or the comfort that they can be themselves. But this doesn't necessarily feel like that situation. This, from what I'm gathering, feels like somebody who's like, I got a wife, but I like to fuck dudes, and that's just (laughs) how it is, and I'm not going to tell anybody. It feels like there's a, a different kind of layer to this from what you're telling me. I don't know if you have any other any anything else you want to touch on on that, but that's kind of the impression that I'm getting just in general of who Ma- um, Michael is just as a just as a person in general. Yeah, he does give the kind of aura, one may say, yeah, of just as long as he's happy, he doesn't care what happens to anybody else. But there's going to be a lot of things coming up of whether or not his wife knew. And so Interesting. there's okay. things like that. But like at this point, yeah, he was looking into a male escort, but they didn't meet. So technically, he didn't cheat, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wrong. Oh, okay, uh, got it. Got yeah. it. Great. Michael later admits to having sex with five to seven different men throughout his relationship with Kathleen. However, Michael refuses to use the word affair. He finds the word, quote, confusing. Oh, like mansion. And he doesn't like labels. Oh, sure. Although he labels himself very definitively as bisexual. He has said very, very definitively, I am bi. (laughs) Yeah. Got it. It's just going to be a a real roller coaster ride for the rest of this. So I'm buckling in. Be careful. I'm buckling in. A quote from Michael, quote, if you say relationships, that would imply more than sex. And that never happened. I'm not multifaceted that I could have more than one relationship. I'm a monogamous person. There was Kathleen. She took up my whole life. Okay. So maybe he didn't officially cheat? (laughs) Wait. I have one more quote. Could I have sex? Yes, that could exist. But not a relationship. I could not go to dinner. No, it'd be inconceivable because she she fulfilled all of that for me. So maybe... He didn't really have sex with these other men. <laughs> Wait. I have another quote oh from Michael. Oh my quote, Yes, God. I did have sex. <laughs> Michael admits that he had sex with men throughout his marriage. Right. But then he quickly claims that Kathleen knew and understood his extramarital activities. We will touch on that in a bit. Now... Some of these things that I'm going to bring up right now, some will say, Christy, this has nothing to do with the case. Everyone makes mistakes in their youth. We have. And to that I say, of course they do. We've all heard the story about me and the police. (laughs) So we've all heard it. So I'm not bringing up the things I'm going to with the thought that it makes any of them guilty of a possible murder. I'm bringing things up Because the documentary in particular really pushed this idea that the Peterson family was this harmonious blended family. And my point is just not everything is as it seems. Of course. So consider things that I'm about to say more family background. Great. So we've touched on Michael's lying briefly. Don't worry. We're coming up to a section later on that's just all Michael lies. (laughs) 
but we we want to we want to take a take a peek at maybe some other slightly sketchy peterson i'd say family but let's face it men uh we're we're sure. we're going to start with michael's oldest son clayton great in may 1994 at the age of 19 clayton peterson was arrested for planting a small pipe bomb at duke university Jesus! Clayton was convicted of possession of a destructive device. He admitted to breaking into the Allen Building, which houses the offices of various administrators, including the Duke University president. So Clayton breaks into the building, places a pipe bomb submerged in gasoline in a closet, and stole equipment that could be used to make a fake ID. According to Clayton, he had plans to head to Myrtle Beach, and he needed a fake ID, as he was only 19 at the time and the legal drinking age in the U.S. being 21. Uh, so to distract from this theft, he planted just a small bomb. I read that while living in Germany, Clayton had easy access to alcohol and a, quote, fascination with explosives. So maybe he just had trouble adjusting to life outside of Europe. Oh I will note the bomb did not go off. No one, no one was injured, but the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives later searched the Peterson home and found six more assembled explosive devices hidden in the attic. Shut up. So Clayton spent four years in a federal prison. (laughs) Yeah. It should be noted, Clayton would go back to Duke University after he was released, which I'm kind of shocked that they allowed. He went on to be an honors student and valedictorian of his class. So just a case of misspent youth, perhaps. Just another case of white men failing up. (laughs) Also, allegedly, Clayton also had to seek counseling when his long-term girlfriend pressed charges after he shoved her. Unfortunately, I don't have more information on that, but all I know is he wasn't prosecuted at all. And now we're going to move on to Todd, Michael's youngest son. Mm. We already uh, have feelings about Todd. We we have a lot of feelings (laughs) about Todd. A lot of opinions. Uh, So Todd was seen in the first few episodes of the documentary, but was surprisingly absent for the last few. Maybe he didn't want the spotlight. Maybe he didn't like the spotlight when he had it in the late 90s. Around 1994, Todd moved from Germany to North Carolina at the age of 18. He attended the University of Raleigh, receiving a degree in political science. After graduation, Todd went into the luxury real estate market and even briefly worked for Nortel, the same company that Kathleen worked for at the time of her death. Sure. After Nortel which was around the late 90s, early 2000s. I unfortunately cannot confirm the exact year. Todd started a website called futazi.com, which was designed to give advice to high school girls. Todd claims he wanted to, quote, help teens like his sisters. The site offered tips for basic things that all teenage girls need, like makeup, dealing with drunk friends, kissing and sex most of the photos on the website were just scantily dressed girls with the exception of the half-naked photos todd posted of himself in boxer shorts shut your lips 
the photos were meant to be before and after photos of Todd's alter ego, a bodybuilder named Roman Croft. Stop. This is insane. This is insane. Not sure what happened to the website. Unfortunately, it is long gone. And also, just so we're clear, just to top it off, uh, Todd has refused to cooperate with the police at any point during this investigation. What about Roman Croft? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and the unfortunate thing for me is, according to Blanche, he's the only one in this family. (laughs) Oh, wow. Worth noting. And unfortunately, Blanche has not seen Roman Croft. So she's not sure, but... Oh, uh, there's just wow. this. We're going to go on a lot of a lot of journeys in this last. I thought we already had been, but I, I'm again, I'm buckling back in this. This just won't stop. If we're going to talk about sketchy past of people in the Peterson family, we have to talk about the king creep himself. Michael Ivor Peterson. Thank you for the full name. I do what I can. Yeah. My main focus in this moment are just like the outright lies that he has been caught saying. Some have been, sometimes he was caught by the police. Sometimes he was caught by this hot detective, Christy Oxborough. (laughs) (laughs) I've lost my mind. It's fine. I like it. (laughs) I don't know what's, what's happening. So as I mentioned earlier, Michael was in the Marines and spent some time in Vietnam in 1969. When he came home, Michael claimed he received a purple heart after a landmine injured his right leg. He mm-hmm. also claimed to have received a second purple heart after being shot. Mm-hmm. So cut two years later, Michael returns home, a decorated war hero, and would later go on to be a best-selling author of three novels loosely based on his time in Vietnam. So... 1999, I told you we would come back to it, and we have. Yep. Yep. Michael decides to run for mayor in Durham, North Carolina. Unfortunately, the press like to look into the backgrounds of all the mayoral candidates, and it turns out that Michael had just slightly embellished his military medals. Oh, no. In fact... When the press looked into military records, they found out that not only had Michael's leg injury actually come from a car accident in Japan, not an incident involving a landmine, but the records also showed that Michael never received any Purple Hearts. He had the medals, but not the paperwork. Some have suggested the medals may have belonged to Michael's father, and he simply just tried to pass them off as his own. So Michael turns out to be a bit of a fraud. He loses not only his reputation, but also the mayoral race. Yeah. In an interview, Michael said, quote, even family and closest friends didn't know the truth. Included in that, his own wife. Michael admitted to the reporter that Kathleen didn't know the truth about the Purple Hearts and said, quote, I'm going to discuss it with her today. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. But that didn't stop him for long as Michael would run for city council in November 2001 and lose once again. Oh, just stop. Mm-hmm. Just stop running. Mm-hmm. You, you've lied. I, quick pause. Mm-hmm. 
there is a special, <laughs> special place in hell mm-hmm. for people who lie about being war heroes when they're not. Mm-hmm. That is a low. That is, again, I'm going to go and say pretty rare, but it's such an insult to all of the people mm-hmm. who 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 give their their lives their safety their bodies th- their lives i can't with that do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like i'm like i i i can't that is like a level of true disgust to me like really mm-hmm. okay great anyway continue you're uh <laughs> Not gonna like him by the end of this. I know, I know it's gonna get it's worse. Never and that's gonna why go I up. wanted to. I wanted to speak for the soldiers now because I know it's only gonna get worse. Yeah, and I don't want to forget. Yeah, that's what I'm. It's saying. gonna get covered with other things. So good call sure. on that. Sure. Yeah. Now that we've already touched on another of Michael's lies, uh, which is the fact of having multiple affairs throughout his marriage to Kathleen, what we haven't touched on is whether or not Kathleen knew about the affairs and was comfortable with them, as Michael had stated. Right. In an interview with Martha Wagner of the Associated Press on February 22nd, 2017, Michael was asked, your wife knew about those things, meaning the affairs, and was comfortable? Michael said, quote, she was comfortable with it. Yes, yes, absolutely. The next day, February 23rd, Michael spoke with the documentary film crew in his home and says, quote, That would have been fun, almost, to discuss that, my sexuality. And I wonder what she would have said. <laughs> right? I don't know. I don't know. She would have, ah, she would have made it right. So wait. The day before, Michael said Kathleen was comfortable with his bisexuality. And he's now suggesting that Kathleen didn't? actually know about it i don't know let's see what else michael had to say in the documentary quote i've never talked to a soul about it this is the first time i've ever even remotely touched on it to make that leap is very difficult and i didn't make that leap with kathleen yes it would have been better i would probably wasn't comfortable with it because i was hiding it it's like when you get away with something you keep getting away with it and then it becomes oh it's all right And just in case that quote wasn't clear enough, I offer Mm -hmm. one more. Please. Michael says, quote, Kathleen and I never spoke of my bisexuality. I did not tell her that I was bisexual or that I had relations with men. What I like about this man, and it's really just one thing, is that he keeps running his mouth enough that every time I'm like, ah, but that doesn't verify it. And he just keeps going until he does verify it. Until he, he literally states... Full, just full statement, quote, mm-hmm. I never said it to her. She didn't know. It's it's my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. the only redeemable thing about him. So then. And again, to be clear, yeah. I know that there are people who are in that position for a multitude of reasons. And I have compassion for people who are in that position. However, I think the, what we're trying to outline here is that this is somebody who has lied upon lies upon lies upon lies and when he is, of course, a suspect in the murder, potential murder of his wife, 
it's very relevant that he was potentially hiding these things from her, that he has been, you know, again, to one person says she knew, to another person says she didn't. We're not painting every person that is having, you know, struggles with their sexuality with this brush. To be clear, it is this person and this chain of events and the fact that he is a suspect in his wife's murder and was keeping this this huge secret that he then lied about multiple times that we think is relevant. I just want to yeah. make it clear. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't care what he does in his personal time. I don't like that he's cheating on his wife. I don't like that, that either. That's my big issue. 100%. You know? But my point being is, you know, there can be people that potentially are in that position and, and just tr- truly don't feel like they can be themselves, et cetera, et cetera. However, they're not also murdering their wives, potentially. Right. Well, <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like, it's also like there's, and to, to be clear, I'm not also, you know, I'm not defending people uh, cheating either, but I'm just saying, I think that it's very relevant in this, in this, uh, in this case to bring all of this up because it's a huge thing to keep from your life partner when she turns up dead. It, it, guess what? Yeah. You just made it a huge part of the story of your life, dude. Yeah, well, I like that you said that because the question is, did anyone in the family know that he was bisexual? Now, Michael's brother, Bill Peterson, said he's known about his brother's sexual orientation since he was a teenager and that it definitely wasn't a secret to anyone in the family. Interesting. Well, I mean, it clearly was a secret to Kathleen. (laughs) Of Of course. Even Michael admitted as such. So we know Kathleen didn't know about the other men. Is it possible that Kathleen knew about the insane amount of gay porn that was on Michael's computer? Because there were over 2,000 downloaded images on Michael's computer featuring naked men, mostly in military uniform, performing various sexual acts. I get that having porn is like so harmless. Uh, in the grand scheme of things. The size of the collection feels very intense to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, could Kathleen have known about the porn, but not known about his bisexuality? I very much doubt that. Yeah. I think that's... It feels like it probably would have sparked a conversation or a (laughs) couple of questions. God, I hope so. Yeah. However, Michael's son, Todd... Good old Todd uh, Uh, was asked outright by investigators. Did Kathleen know about the pornography on Michael's computer? Buckle in, folks. This one's a bit lengthy. Todd says, quote, my father received a computer virus several months earlier. What the virus did is it took all the files on your desktop and it snatched them up and it would email them to everybody on his email list. Everything. So this included book chapters, photographs, software, including these pictures you're talking about. I was over at the house one weekend, as usual, watching the football game, and on my way to the TV room, I heard a discussion inside the kitchen that sounded pretty interesting, and I kind of creeped up closer into the kitchen to listen in. It was Kathleen talking to my father about the photographs on his computer, saying, I want you to get them off of this, these possibly... Before this could have happened again, it could go to our family or our friends and our neighbors. I want you to get them off the computer. If you ever get this again, I don't want it to be a concern of ours. So it was a full conversation, completely acknowledging the fact. So Todd says that Kathleen knew about these photos. Obviously, we completely trust Todd. 
Right. I mean, if Kathleen didn't know and came across it while sitting at Michael's computer the night of her death, can you imagine the incredible shock that she would maybe have? So we are absolutely sure that Kathleen didn't know about Michael's true orientation. In Michael's words, quote, I was wrong to deceive Kathleen. I didn't tell her. I cheated her of a deeper and more profound marriage. So she didn't know. While we're still on the topic of Michael's lies, just a reminder, when the EMS arrived at the scene, Michael claimed he'd stepped outside for just a moment to turn off pool lights, came in and found Kathleen. After he then said, uh, after they told him the blood was dry, Michael's timeline suddenly didn't fit, so he changed his story that he stayed outside for a while. Then he told his lawyers he was outside alone from 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. So now... We've looked into some of Michael's lies. Let's head back to 2003, his murder trial. The prosecution has brought up Elizabeth's similar death. They brought up Michael's almost hookup with an escort. Let's look at the theories on both sides of this case. So we've got the prosecution, right? Mm -hmm. uh, prosecution believed that while using Michael's computer on the night of her death, remember she was waiting for a work email. Yes. Kathleen discovered that Michael was bisexual and having an affair with a male escort. They believed that an argument ensued and in a fit of rage, Michael killed Kathleen, most likely using a blow poke and then staged the scene to look like Kathleen had fallen down the stairs. Now, if I never hear the term blowpoke ever again <laughs> i will die a happy woman now what is a blowpoke is that for a fire it's this long thin metal tube you can you use it to stoke a fire because one end has the little hook right. that you can poke and one end is like an open that you can blow into it to blow air it's into the literally fire. a blowpoke yeah. it's not just a clever name correct well it was said so many times that i just felt like it stopped being words again i am Feeling a little punchy and a little weird today, so maybe that's I like it. it. I'm here for it. Uh, Kathleen's sister Candace testified that in 1984 she gave her three siblings and their mother all a blowpoke. It it just it's uh, I just the term drives me insane. It is what it is, but we didn't have to bring it up as often as we did. So Candace says she saw the blowpoke at the Peterson home in December 2001, but it was nowhere to be found when police did their searches through the home. Then magically, as if sent directly from heaven, if you believe in such things, yeah. Michael's children conveniently find the blowpoke the night before the very last day of the trial. Stop. What are the odds of that? Cle Low. <laughs> Low poke. Is, no, no. <laughs> She's got a problem. Yep. Uh, Clayton just happened upon it at like two in the morning. Not to mention the fact that Michael ordered two blowpokes online uh, weeks before this. But based on the shipping, they wouldn't arrive until after the end of the trial. And the defense claims, oh, they ordered those to be used as a prop. Sure. A prop for what? Right. His alter ego, what was his name? Roman, Henry Crane? Roman Croft. <laughs> Excuse me, Roman Croft. Oh, is Roman Croft got a photo shoot? Like, oh. what do you need the blowpoke for? Right. And I'm writing down Roman Croft. Thank, thank you. you very much. But what if the kids thought this magical blowpoke would save their father? 
Candace claimed she gave one to three siblings and their mother. What if the kids either borrowed or straight up snuck it out of grandma's house and put it somewhere in the house and just waited for the right moment to bring it out and be like, look, here's the blowpoke. Obviously, he didn't do it. Is this such a crazy idea? When the blowpoke is found in the documentary, Michael says, quote, Todd said, I want to talk to you, Dad, and I'm going to ask you, would you bet your life on that blowpoke? And I know exactly what he was doing and what he was saying. That, Dad, I know if there's any chance there's blood or hair or anything on that blowpoke, I'll take that goddamn thing and send it in Jordan Lake. He didn't say that, but I knew that's what he was getting at. So if this even, isn't helping, <laughs> so Michael, even, yeah, so even Michael thinks that his kids would do something illegal to save him. So who's <laughs> to say they wouldn't produce a blowpoke out of nowhere? The defense, their big thing, the blowpoke was covered in spider webs, so it had to have been there for ages. Well, Christy, she's a science nerd. She's got more facts than you've ever heard, such as. <laughs> I can barely get through that. Did you You're know doing great work? It only takes about an hour for a spider to make an elaborate spider web. I so did not know that. Maybe it wasn't there as long as everyone claims. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it only takes an hour to make a web, I'd say there's a pretty good chance that uh, you can't use that as any form of reference for a uh, defense in a murder trial. Also, <laughs> the one that they found didn't have the little pokey end on it, which is the part that would have tore up her scalp, essentially. I don't think the blowpoke was the weapon. I think they were just like, oh, yeah, that works. And I, I don't know what the weapon was. But again, we'll get to it. I Yep. When we get to theories. Can't wait. I, I wrote out my theory. Normally, I just off the cuff. I just go for it. This time... I wrote it out. But again, it's this weird punchy energy I'm bringing so buckle. Oh, up. I've taken so many notes this episode <laughs> that are crazy. And uh, mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. I'm saving it all till the end. I can't, I can't wait. wait. Uh, so now that was the prosecution. We've got the defense. Defense has their own theories. At okay. first, they believe that while drunk on wine and champagne and trying to maneuver the steep stairs in flip-flops, in a dimly lit area that Kathleen simply fell. But that theory is kind of shit since her blood alcohol level was so low and the abundance of blood. Yeah. So they need another theory. Maybe Kathleen was killed by an intruder. Michael claimed they had several break-ins prior to Kathleen's death. Kathleen's Blackberry had once been stolen from the kitchen while they were watching TV. He said, quote, our cars had been ransacked in the driveway so often that I no longer locked the Porsche, but left coins in the ashtray as a toll. You know, protection money. <laughs> okay, very quickly, because yeah. I, I know we, 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 go, we go for quite some time on this show, but mm -hmm. do they really think that a stranger came in the house and stole her Blackberry from the kitchen, or was it one of the sons who's done jail time for making bombs, for example? <laughs> Throwing it out there. I'm just curious... Were they like, oh, wow, it's missing. Someone stole it. And then it was like, oh, never mind. It was in the bedroom. Yeah. Like, you know, but I also don't I just, trust Michael's thoughts at all. <laughs> Continue. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> the problem 
with this intruder theory is there was no sign of anyone in the house. No fingerprints, hair, nothing. So another possibility brought up by the defense was that maybe Kathleen was attacked by an owl. <laughs> no. Yes, folks. You Stop. heard me correctly. The defense team were going to try and say that Kathleen was killed by an owl. Is this the owl that also stole her Blackberry? Like, what the... F I Stop. understand that owls bring Hogwarts letters, not attack adults, <laughs> but, you know. Okay, walk me through this, because I have heard a little something, but I have not... I don't know the ins and outs of this, and mm -hmm. I need to know because it sounds batshit to me. Yeah. So, <laughs> the thought is, on her way from the pool to the house... Yeah. Kathleen goes to the front yard to adjust a wooden lawn reindeer ornament. And okay. between there and her front door, an owl swooped down, grabbed onto her head with its feet. Now, does this theory sound insane when you first hear it? Of course it does. Does it get more and more plausible the more you look into it? Weirdly enough, yes. Do I need to start fearing an owl attack? Oh, just in life in general? Yes. Yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> this has, even before this, you know how I feel about birds. Just, I'm very non-Dina about birds, I'll say that. Look, so am I. I yeah. also, like, Peaches, my one dog, is four pounds, and I don't let her out of this house alone because I have this terrible image in my mind of an owl just taking her and flying away. But I've never, I've never considered that I needed to fear for my own life with an owl. Well, I mean, according to people who live in the area, barred owls are prevalent to that area. And they tend to attack people unprovoked and without warning. There is also the fact that two of the marks on Kathleen's scalp had a three-pronged, almost trident-like shape that looks similar to owl talons. The ME said that Kathleen had multiple hairs in her hands, 38 in one hand, 25 in the other, all of which was her own hair. The defense suggests that Kathleen was pulling at her hair to get the owl loose. Now, apparently when the hairs were analyzed, they found to have microscopic feathers on them. The defense says the feathers are even mentioned in the autopsy report, which I have read and found no mentions of feathers. Uh, it is possible that I've missed it. I am mentally on a different plane this week, so it is possible I missed it. But it'll also be in our uh, virtual case file, truecrimeandcocktails.com. Thank you. When asked about the possibility of an owl attack, Michael yeah. says, quote, I feel certain that Kathleen brought out the balsa wood deer to decorate for Christmas the night after she left me at the pool and before going to bed. But I do not know if an owl attacked her. So she's on her way to bed. She's got an early conference call and she's like, okay, I need to go to bed. And then she's like, uh, but first I'm going to go to the front of the house and in the dark put out the wooden reindeer for Christmas. Okay. That to me feels like it's a little bit, I mean, I guess I would do it where you're like, I'm in the middle of doing something and then you veer off to do something else. But it just feels like, would she really be at the back of the house and be like, I'm going to go do that at the front of the house and go around the house? Well, <laughs> speaking as someone who may or may not have taken an <laughs> online quiz and may or may not have been 
you know, lightly diagnosed with severe ADHD. No, not severe, mid-range. But the point is, yes, I can. I could see myself mm-hmm. doing that, that it's like I'm doing something, I'm doing something else, I'm doing something else. But my question is, so let's say that's true. Yeah. She's in the backyard with him. She goes to the front of the house to put this lawn ornament out. Yeah. She gets attacked by an owl. Does he not hear screaming? How does she get from the owl attack in the front yard to dead in a pool of blood at the bottom of the stairs inside the house? That's the other thing. Like, there was, like, a tiny bit of blood on the porch. So you would think there would be a lot of blood outside and that, yeah, he would hear her screaming. Because it's nighttime. Yes. Right? And I don't care how big this mansion is. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if someone let, let jokes aside though mm-hmm. if you're being if you're legit being attacked by a giant owl in, in the front of your house you're gonna be and to the point that you're pulling hair and trying to fight it off you're gonna be screaming bloody murder there is no mm-hmm. way in hell that i buy that he did not hear it in the backyard so that Agreed. tells me a few things either he wasn't actually there he had gone somewhere and that he was lying about that. Yeah. Or he heard her screaming and he ignored it. Or or do you know what I mean? Or or he was watching and and let it happen. Like like to me there 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 has to be I just don't buy that if that was happening that he would not hear it in the backyard. Oh, I agree. I've also spent the last couple of minutes thinking about owls again. She's not right. And look, unless it's delivering my Hogwarts letter or it somehow will turn into the Goblin King, I have no interest in owls or most sure. birds. Sure. In that case, I'm sure people have birds that are lovely. I just, birds, uh, there's something about them that freak me out. But yeah, I find it crazy to think that he would not have heard any of this. And you would think if she's freaking out and like freaking out, like it's in her. Like, you would think at some point she'd have, like, feathers that would be all over the house by the time she gets inside and runs through the house. So I just, and you would think there would be more blood throughout the house as she went through. Because also, let's say she's screaming, mm-hmm. she comes back in, she's screaming for him. She Because you did also mention the red neurons, I believe, in her brain, correct? Mm-hmm. That that suggests that she could have been laying and dying for a long time. Yeah. Is it possible that he was somewhere else? Is it possible that he got in his car and went somewhere else? Now, I don't know whether you get into that and I'm tipping the hat or or not. But, like, to me, there's a if he is not guilty, if he did not kill her, he is guilty of something. It's right. like the Madeline McCann case when we talk about like, okay, the parents may not have killed her, but it feels like there's some negligence involved here. It's the same thing where it's like, and now I understand she's a grown woman and he doesn't need to be there, but it's like, it feels like there's some lying going on here. If if he did not kill her and it was potentially this, I can't believe I'm saying these words, random wild owl attack, mm-hmm. it, it does feel like, to me, the only way I buy that is that he's not at the house or that he's some, like, major, like, I don't know, super villain and, like, standing arms crossed watching, being like, yes, 
<laughs> keep going, Maurice. You know, like <laughs> with a pipe. Do you know what I mean? Like with the pipe. With a pipe, exactly. Yeah. With the with the the blow poke over his shoulder, oh. like this is a red herring. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's. I just don't know. It just feels like. I don't know. That that just doesn't make sense to me right there. As far as I know, he was at the house when it first came out that where she was found and Michael came up with the story that he was at the pool because, again, he kept changing his story as to where he was. Right. They did a sound test where they brought like a huge speaker and sat it at the spot where Kathleen was found and played a recording that was just a woman screaming and I had to turn it down so low because I was in the hotel and I was terrified that people were going to think I was being attacked. Yes. And they played it so that they could see if you could hear someone screaming from that point all the way to the pool. And they said you could not. Interesting. So, again, though, I feel and, like okay, she would have sure. run in all the way through the house. There would be so much more blood between there if that's what had happened, right? Right. So, okay, let's say, for argument's sake, you can't hear the screaming again, then that says to me, if nothing else, it was a fucking mansion. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) But, yeah, but then it's like, what is her path from the attack in the front yard to her place of death at the foot of the stairs inside the house? What's that path like then? Right? Like you're saying, like, and then there's so much blood there. Like, did she scream like crazy in the front yard? somehow managed to run in without dripping that much blood, lay down at the foot of the stairs, and then slowly bleed out for two hours? Well, I also want to know, like, if it did, like, attach her to her, like, how how did it get free? Because you and would I'm think her say- pulling on it, it would just pull even harder. I'm so how did it not get in the house? I'm going to say something vile. So trigger warning for people who are queasy. Sorry, because you're going to have to listen to it. No, no I, wow. Calling me queasy. No, Ac- no I'm just saying accurate, like, you don't have a accurate. choice. No, no. You don't have a choice. No, it was accurate. This is awful. But mm-hmm. there was a woman who was a custodian at a high school in my hometown was working on the roof one day and this is a 100 this is not an urban legend or a folktale this is this is corroborated her hair got caught in a fan and it ripped her scalp off oh my god she did not die so i offer this only as let's say the owl attack is true we're down that fucking river so far right now who cares <laughs> The owl attack is real for this moment. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. that going to kill you? Because again, I'm so sorry, but I do believe that you you could have your scalp ripped off. This is this is awful. I'm sorry. And I don't know that that's going to kill you. Again, if you then laid down without medical attention for two hours, sure. But that in and of itself, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, I don't buy that she wouldn't have been able to get to her husband, get to a phone, something? Doesn't it feel? Yeah. Like, there's uh, there's a lot of questions that I have and will continue to bring up because they're never going to go away. One last but, question before, yeah. I'm so sorry, one last question. What was her official cause of death? They put her as, I believe they said blunt force trauma. 
But then they've questioned it because blunt force trauma, usually there's like a fracture to the skull or like, you know, but there were no skull fractures in this. Got it. Mm -hmm. But you see what I'm saying. Again, I'm sorry to be crass and I'm not trying to be crass at all, but I'm just trying to illustrate that it's like, I don't know that that itself just kills you. Like, I think that you would have time in the adrenaline of the moment, right? To like get to a phone, yeah. get to you know, I don't know. That just doesn't. It just doesn't. That just make me go ah, yeah. Random owl <laughs> attacked her. She couldn't be heard. Case closed. You know. Yeah. There's look. The owl theory sounds ridiculous, and then you're like, ah, like I've heard weirder things. So you're like, maybe I don't know. But I'm, then I would be like, but then if that was true and then he was lying about something else, it would be like, now would be the time to say, I was lying. I drunk drove and I was somewhere else. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, are you hiding that you were drunk driving and that you weren't at home? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I just feel like, are you trying to cover for something else? Because the only other thing is, is, you know, that's the only thing I can think is that it's like, I she, got it, she gets, if this, again, we're... We're going with the owl theory for a second. Mm-hmm. She's attacked by the owl. She's got a lot of damage. She runs into the house. He's not there. She tries to get to a phone. She can't find a phone or the phones have been cut off or there's something problem with the phones. She panics, whatever. She's getting sleepy. She like, you know, starts to pass out from the lack of blood and she slowly dies. Yeah. Could that happen? Yeah. But where is he? Again, that doesn't to me account <laughs> for where he he is I just don't know I just don't believe that she wouldn't that he wouldn't have heard her coming back into the house and I don't believe that she couldn't have gotten back out to him yeah look there's uh, once you bring in owls there's never gonna be an answer that you're gonna like this is why the people want this case this is why I get it I get it now remember when Michael was just beside himself about the idea of the prosecution exhuming Elizabeth's body and how he felt it would just destroy the girls. Well, he has decided that if um, exhuming the body could help determine if there was owl DNA in Kathleen's wounds, well, he says he would absolutely authorize it. So I guess he's just no longer concerned about the girls' feelings? I don't know. So whether it was an intruder or an owl or simply an accidental fall, the defense believed that the Durham County Police went after Michael to get revenge on Michael's time as a columnist where he would often criticize the police and the district attorney. Now, before we get to the conviction portion of the trial, I'd like to take a moment to talk about some things that came up at the trial and in the documentary that didn't sit right with me in a section that I've entitled things that didn't sit right with me. (laughs) I wish I had a music sting for each of these. I really do. Not a, not a jingle, but like a, yeah, like I'm, I'm getting a really strong, like late night show. vibe you know i think and i just want to be your paul schaefer i just you're my david letterman and i want to be your paul schaefer that's what i'm saying i like that a lot although he is very problematic so i'd rather be not i mean very you know basic terms yes since we're talking late night hosts 
Shout out to Seth Myers. <laughs> it's not her first time. It won't be her last, ladies and gentlemen. Blanche, everybody. Blanche. So nice to see you, Blanche. Yep. Surprising just... it took you this long to join us, and happy you're here. I mean, she did a very quick, like, he's a garbage human, but God, that Todd's got a face. And then just quickly scooter right back out. But Which now is interesting she's in that, goes against, that goes against Blanche's prior statement that she responds to energies. You're damn right. Look, I don't understand Blanche. <laughs> and nobody does, and no. I don't want to. I don't want to. It's the only person I don't want to psychologically profile. There you go. I would like to sit down and flip through a book that's very similar to like, you know, uh, like a, if, if a crime is committed and you have to look through this book of felons, mm-hmm. I would like to look through a book like that and just without even thinking about it just don't think just say yes or no and just see what happens because who knows like she's all over the place she can't be stopped i don't want her to be this is kind of going to go all over the place but these are just things that i either have mentioned and i'm upset about and really want to mention them again or haven't mentioned it right with her thank you oh paul schaefer ladies and gentlemen (laughs) You're putting Paul to shame. Thank you. When Michael is telling the documentary crew about the events from the night of Kathleen's death, he describes them being out by the pool and then says, quote, that's it. That's the last time I saw Kathleen alive. No, she was alive when I found her, but barely. What? Yeah. So he caught himself with the, oh, that was the last time I saw her alive. No, like, and very quickly was like, oh, shit, no. No, I didn't. She was alive when I found her, but, like, barely. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when he did find Kathleen, she was bleeding badly enough that he grabbed towels and paper towels, both of which were found around the body when EMS arrived, yet when he called 911, he made no mention of blood. I know he was probably in shock. I guess we'll give him a break. Then there's the fact that he deleted, like, 600 files and photos from his computer using a program called Quick Clean. Who thinks to use a program like that the day their wife dies? Nobody who doesn't have something to hide, Mm. period. That does not mean he's guilty of a murder. Nope. But that means he has something to hide, period. 100%. If, it, if he deleted emails from an owl, I swear to God. <laughs> I'll no. tell you how many licks it takes to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, I guess that was another owl. The only positive ones I could think were Harry Potter and Labyrinth. Well, Although Labyrinth, I don't know if that's positive. No. Who doesn't have a thing for the Goblin King? Ooh, that rhymes. Uh, so Michael claims it was a beautiful night and they sat outside by the pool for hours. Keep in mind, he was wearing shorts, and it was approximately, like, 50 degrees, which isn't really shorts weather at 1 a.m. in December. (laughs) No. Also, no one ever explained why a luminol test was done at the crime scene. It revealed bloody footprints going from Kathleen's body to the laundry room to the kitchen, where it went from the refrigerator to the sink And then to the cabinet that holds the wine glasses, the cabinet also had blood drops on them. But keep in mind, they found these footprints with luminol. 
So those footprints were all cleaned up before EMS arrived. So that's something to think about. Um, so it's the fact that somebody went from her body and then went in the kitchen, grabbed like wine glasses, went to the fridge and to the sink. So it's like someone wanted to make her look drunk. So they like poured some wine in glasses and then maybe poured some down the sink to be like, look, we went through multiple bottles of wine. Uh, because Michael claims that he and Kath Kathleen drank two bottles of wine that night, plus some champagne. But Kathleen's blood alcohol level was 0 0.07, which is like one to two drinks. Not to mention, neither of the wine glasses had Kathleen's fingerprints on them. Stop. Come on, guys. Yeah. Throughout the trial, Michael took comprehensive notes with the plans of writing a book. He apparently had a book deal going as long as he was not as as long as he was found not guilty. On the back of Kathleen's sweatpants, there was a footprint. It matched the shoes he was wearing. How did it get there? Her pant like the part where his shoe would have touched was on the floor. There was no way for him to get to it unless he found her in a different way and moved her around. Margaret sent a letter to the DA asking him to release the videotapes that Michael had rented from Blockbuster as they were racking up steep late fees. During the trial, one of the detectives claims the prosecution tested the stamp from the letter to see if Michael was Margaret's biological father. According to the detective, there was no biological link found, even though Margaret looks exactly like Michael and both of his sons. But if Michael knew about this rumor, he would not want it to be found if it was in fact that she is his real daughter, because that just adds further motive to the issue. Uh, so is it possible he would set something up? Because just because someone sent a letter doesn't mean they were specifically the ones who licked the stamp. It also so, doesn't mean that she sent the letter. Right? So there was no chain of custody, so the results were not admissible in court. So they were like, oh, well, it's not his daughter. And I'm like, maybe. Maybe. Like, we don't know for sure, because that test proved nothing to me. No. Uh, also, when asked if Michael ever had an affair with Margaret's mother, Elizabeth... Michael's ex-wife Patty said, quote, under no circumstances would he have had a sexual affair with her, which feels very certain to me, despite the fact that he at one point admitted to cheating on Patty with both men and women. Maybe not Elizabeth, but how can Patty be so certain that he didn't? Yeah. I also did not like the blowpoke magically being found the day before the last day yeah. of trial. I think it's bullshit. I'm not convinced it was the murder weapon, but it's just way too inconvenient for me. Something else is Michael was known to have a temper, something the documentary never once mentioned. Investigators asked Clayton if Michael ever hit him when he was a child. He responded, oh, yeah. Todd was asked the same thing, and he quickly said, oh, parental discipline, but that's it. Kate, uh -huh. Caitlin claimed to hear loud arguments amongst them, and the defense's team had a board. It was like a pros and cons thing where they, were, where they wrote good and bad to know what are things that are going to be brought up that are helpful to our case and what would hurt our case. 
on the list of things that they wrote as bad, they put, quote, Michael, talkative, inaccurate, and angry person. Hmm. Again, that's the defense team's wording, not mine. Uh, also yeah. on the list, Martha's diary was listed as a negative for the defense. I could not find any more about it, but that can't be good if it was seen as a bad thing for defense. Yep. It is also rumored that Michael hit a family pet in a fit of rage and killed it and then told, <gasps> his, told his children it uh, died of natural causes. I was unable to confirm this, but am not surprised by the idea that it possibly existed. Just like a human woman fell down the stairs and died of natural causes? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, at this point, Michael Peterson's trial was the longest and possibly the most sensational trial in Durham's history. October 10th, 2003, Michael Peterson was found guilty of first-degree murder of Kathleen Peterson, he was given the automatic sentence in North Carolina for first-degree murder, which is life in prison without the possibility of parole. Michael's defense team would apply for numerous appeals and get denied every time. Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin, brought a wrongful death suit against Michael and won. She was awarded $25 million, which, of course, she has not seen a dime of. And no offense, but spoiler alert, Caitlin, you never will. No. Although, I get it. It's it's not about the money. You yeah, know, it, yeah. so I get it. This, this symbolism, for yes. sure. So, seemingly unrelated to the case is that of Gregory F. Taylor. Taylor was exonerated after spending 17 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Turns out the testimony of the uh, blood analysis expert, Dwayne Deaver, was what the, was the big factor in Taylor's conviction, but it turns out it wasn't true because Deaver admitted to misrepresenting the blood test results. Dwayne Deaver was a member of the SBI. He had exaggerated his work experience, claiming he was involved in over 500 cases, when in reality it was closer to 54. In 2011, Deaver was fired after his handling of dozens of cases was questioned. Approximately 200 cases were flagged as improperly handled, some of which were by Deaver. In two of those cases, he said that blood was present, and in his notes, it said there was no blood. So he would tell the court one thing, and his notes proved it was a lie. So in Taylor's case, Deaver withheld evidence. In the Peterson case, Michael believes that Deaver invented evidence. But now the state has cast doubt on Dwayne Deaver being an expert, and unfortunately, Deaver did the blood analysis in the Peterson trial. So members of the jury admitted they were split on the information, but when they heard Deaver's testimony, that made them unanimous. So because of this, Michael Peterson gets awarded a retrial. Mm -hmm. So after serving eight years in prison, Michael gets released in 2011. Then he goes through six years of house arrest while waiting for a new trial, which was set to begin May 8, 2017. The defense was ready to go with things like Kathleen's clothing was never DNA tested. Claims that the police found the blowpoke in June 2002, photographed it, and then moved it to a different part of the house. However, that photograph conveniently is nowhere to be found. 
Uh, and of course, they had that solid owl theory that they were just anxious to bring in front of a judge. So at this point, Michael is 73 years old. He's broke. His kids are emotionally spent. So after many, many discussions with his lawyers, Michael decides to enter an Alford plea. An Alford plea means that while Michael is not admitting to any guilt, he is admitting that he knows the prosecution has enough evidence to convict him. So Michael wanted to make sure that he never had to actually say the word guilty. This is the quote of everything Michael has ever spouted that upsets me the most. Quote, Never, never, never would I admit that I killed Kathleen. It just doesn't. Again, that could go into uh, stuff that doesn't sit well with me. Yep, yep. So February 2017, Michael uses this Alford plea to plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter. His guilty plea is accepted and the judge allows time served as Michael's sentence. So he's currently a free man. Oh. So now that we've spent the last couple of hours getting to know the Peterson gang, let's check in and see what they've been up to since the documentary ended. Yes, please. So Clayton, you know what? Married with two sons living in Maryland. Huh. Todd. Not much is known about Todd. He prefers to stay away from the public eye. I guess I also should have checked Roman Croft. <laughs> He's living in Tennessee. Margaret is married, living in California, and working as a production assistant on various movies. Martha lives in Colorado, working as a counselor, which, good for her on that, because apparently this whole thing caused her very, very massive anxiety. And she's just, like, found a way to turn it into a positive. So kudos to her for that. Caitlin is married, mother of twins, living in Virginia. Now, I know, who's the one we want to know the most of what's he been up to? And that is Michael himself. In January 2019, Michael published Behind the Staircase, which details his experiences from Kathleen's death through to his time in prison and his newfound freedom. All of the profits, this was a book, uh, all of the profits went to various children's charities. I did read the book. It was difficult. It to, seemed to be more interested in proving how rich they were. Like he was constantly talking about his Porsche, Kathleen's Jaguar, his Versace tie. Like he was constantly like brand name dropping. But yet uh, when the media called his 10,000 square foot home a mansion, he was offended. For those now who might have been worried that Michael might have been lonely over the years, it turns out he had a relationship with Sophie Brunette, the editor of the Staircase documentary. Shut the front door. Sophie says she fell in love with Michael while working on the film. Stop. Michael describes Sophie as, quote, 17 years younger, a socialist, married with a 10-year-old son. After watching hundreds of hours of film, Sophie decided to send a letter to Michael. They started a pen pal friendship, which escalated to romance. Sophie, who lived in Paris at the time, would fly to North Carolina every two to three months for between 2003 and 2007. She often attended the trial 
and could be seen sitting with his daughters. Michael claims the relationship didn't start until October 2003, but sources claim it started in early 2002. (laughs) So maybe that's why, again, when you're talking about the documentary and you're like, well, they didn't really touch on his anger issues. It's like, well, maybe that's because somebody involved in the documentary had a vested interest in making it not make him seem guilty. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Yeah. 100%. So the relationship, unfortunately or fortunately, depending how you want to look at it, ended in May 2017, which I find very interesting. That is interesting. That their relationship lasted until two months after he was officially freed. Mm -hmm. He was released from prison in 2008, but it was February of 2017 when he was officially a free man. And then two months later... He took a free man further and became single. (laughs) I don't know. I've got nothing. So Michael and Sophie were in this like relatively secret relationship for 14 or 15 of the 16 years that this documentary recorded. That's a huge problem. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, don't worry. That is such a... I can't... Don't worry. Uh, He wasn't overly serious about it. (laughs) Before you think, oh, that's a long time to be with someone, even though uh, most of it was done long distance, in his book, Michael says that he, quote, had been madly in love twice. And would you know, neither of them were Sophie? (laughs) Ah. Uh, So I don't know if he's bitter because he got dumped or if he was just using her the whole time. And now that he's a free man and can go wherever he wants, he's just like, ah, I'm good. And if a lengthy relationship didn't do enough for Michael's ego, it's recently been announced that his story is being made into a miniseries by HBO Max starring Colin Firth, which is the most generous fucking casting I can think about. I made a note earlier that I really feel he should have been played by John C. McGinley in any sort of Mm -hmm. film. And then I also put a circle around... This is why he thinks he's a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Obviously, John Mm -hmm. C. McGinley playing one on Scrubs. I was like, this is why he feels. But don't you feel like there's like a vague resemblance? Like, I'm not saying they look alike, but I feel like I could see him playing him far more than Colin Firth. It's a stretch to say Colin Firth. It's a massive stretch. Well, speaking of stretch uh, and of generous casting... There was a 2007 Lifetime movie where he was played by none other than Treat Williams. And I'm going to say it. Sorry, what now? I watched it. It was just as bad as you want it to be. (laughs) Treat Williams on fire. Because I am still thinking about the scene in Hair where he dances on the table and sings I Got Life. I Since high school. Love him yes and i love hair and i love that scene and i love you for bringing it up yeah i'm going to have to source this and watch it myself but but in a word wow yeah there's a lot and uh look i'm gonna say it that was the uh maybe slightly abrupt end of my notes but when it comes to theories i went different this week and i feeling punchy I I wrote out my theory 
instead of uh, coming up with it off the cuff. So, well, I think I should go first because yes, I don't really have I don't really have anything too good to add. So oh, I'm not like, saying this is good. I'm just saying. Well, one of my theories up. was just that John C. McGinley should play him in a movie, and I've already burned that. So we're that's gone. Yeah. That's not even a theory, but I was like, I was just compiling notes that I wanted to hit at this point. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to, I will read you like things that I wrote down, mm-hmm. whether or not they make sense, uh, and give you some other thoughts. First of all, I did spell tolerance right. Not a girl. See, I told yeah. you you would. And, and Valedictorian. I also, spelled, I also spelled narcissist right, which is also really a testament to who I am. Yeah. <laughs> I also wrote down Scott Peterson, Drew Peterson, Michael Peterson. What is with the Peterson men murdering their wives? I'm not saying that Michael Peterson, I know it's alleged, it's alleged, it's alleged, but it just feels wild to me that there are three very well-known cases, and there's probably potentially more. Yes. There's three very, very well-known cases where there are men who have the last name Peterson who have been accused of murdering their wives. Doesn't that Mm -hmm. seem wild? All within a relatively similar time frame? I know that's some synchronicity, but that feels bizarre to me. Oh, you know how we feel about synergy. (laughs) Thank you. Again, not a theory, but this is the time for me to talk about it. Here's another note I wrote down. Patty bad with kids? (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh What what if she could see at the young age that the one daughter has basically Michael's nose so... What if she picked up on, oh, my God, they had an affair. They had a child together. What if Patty was the one that did something to Elizabeth after confronting her about it and then felt terribly guilty seeing this child all the time? And then it got to the point where they divorced and he was like, well, I'm going to take the girls then. And she was like, thank God, I can't look at that kid anymore. I could see that. I could see that for sure. Listen, I don't know where I lie on this. The owl thing has got me thrown for a loop because I thought it was cuckoo bananas and now I'm like, maybe? But then again, I feel like he's still involved in some way or he still lied in some way. Again, the Alfred plea to me says, I know that it's it exists because it's like not saying you're guilty, but it's also like, I don't know. I feel like it's not also saying you're innocent. It seems to me, this is a very quick thing I'll say. It seems to me they used luminol. They found these these footprints. They found the blood in the kitchen. There's none of her fingerprints on the wine glasses. There weren't wasn't the level of alcohol in her system. His footprint was on the butt of her pants. He there was another woman in his life that was found in an exceptionally similar circumstance in terms of death. Where there's smoke, there's fire. Sometimes the simplest answer is the truth. That's where I'm kind of weighing in at this point. Give me your theory. You wrote it out. I want to hear it. I liked everything you had to say. Thank and you. I I was a different person when I wrote this, so I don't know yeah. what's, what's about to come out. But mm-hmm. either I'm sorry or you're welcome or a combination of the two. Yeah. So do I think it was an intruder? There were no signs of a stranger being inside the house, so no. Do I think it was an owl? I mean, the lacerations on Catherine's scalp almost fit with the theory, but I'd like to believe that if it had happened, not only would Michael have heard her screaming, 
no matter how far he was on the property, but also there would have been way more blood on the front porch other than what was found. Whoever did this, and I do not believe that it was premeditated, I think it was an impulsive move from a fight that escalated. Do I think it was Michael? Legally, I can't say that. So while I'm not saying it was Michael, because I'm not, run with me on this. What if your wife, the woman you love, who also happens to be the only person in the relationship actually making money because your books haven't brought in a single penny in three years. Thank you. Let's say this woman learns that you lied about receiving two military honors in Vietnam. And then let's say two years after that, while she's still unsure if she should trust any word that you say, let's say she's at your computer, she's waiting for a work email, and then she comes across emails in which you arrange to meet an escort for sex. And not just any escort, but a male escort. So now your wife realizes that you are cheating on her, which is the very thing that ended her first marriage, and then maybe she thinks back to all the times that she's been angry at you for coming home late from the gym time and time again, and she starts to wonder, just how long has this cheating been going on? And then there's the fact that not only are you cheating, but you also lied to her about your sexual orientation, and what if while in your email, she sees that you recently emailed your ex-wife asking for money because your adult sons are crazy in debt and you can't afford to help them. And not only that, but you tell her that you simply cannot discuss it with your wife. So now she has no idea who the person is that she's married to. Now, is it possible, based on the information that I've just presented, that you might get into a fight with your wife and that she might threaten to leave you and suddenly you realize her leaving would completely implode your life and you wouldn't be able to afford the house without her and without thinking you grab the nearest object, hit her in the back of the head as she's angrily storming away from you? Does any of that sound plausible? The prosecution rests, Your Honor. <laughs> if we don't get you a soundboard at some point, I'm going to well. be... <laughs> We Listen, just, I like all my sounds practical right now. Yeah. Christy Oxborough, I think you nailed it, knocked it out of the park. We're saying again for legal reasons, we are not saying that anybody committed no. any crime. We are saying we are alleging that mm -hmm. there is a, you know, in a in a grand scheme of anything being possible, could something be possible? Who knows? Yeah. Excellent work. Knocked it out of the park. Ten out of ten. You know what? I take that back. Twelve out of ten. Oh. I you killed it like you always do. That's an A plus plus. Thank oh. you very much. And I think uh -huh. you really hit the nail on the head there at the end. And I, I agree with you on all fronts that it just feels like, like I said, where there's smoke, there's fire. The simplest answer is usually true. A rogue owl attack, while possible, feels less plausible than perhaps feelings getting heated. Listen, this has been a complete joy and a pleasure on my part. I am I'm so happy as always to be here with you. I'm I'm sorry that you're still in your own, you know, uh, end of ET quarantine, but I'm glad that you're here with me. Listen, everyone to li who's listening, thank you for being here with us. We're so excited as always that you joined us. If you're not following us already on social media, check us out Instagram and Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails, Twitter at Not Detectives. 
You can also check out our virtual case files on our website, truecrimeandcocktails.com. And if you're looking for a little bit more, you want some more of these two yahoos jibba-jabbing, then go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash truecrimeandcocktails. It's a subscription service where we offer bonus episodes, we offer lives, all kinds of fun stuff that we do over there every month. Now, Christy, we have been getting some an alarming amount of requests Mm -hmm. for next week's episode and it's one that's special to our hearts because it was what 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 kind of inspired this entire thing and so do you want to tell the people what we're going to be talking about on the next episode of true crime and cocktails famous fatalities edition oh wow i feel i should at least preface it with we're going unsolved mysteries we're going back to the netflix unsolved mysteries episodes So our next episode is going to be entitled No Ride Home, Alonzo Brooks. That's right. The very first time that Christy and I talked about anything true crime was on an old podcast that I did. We talked about this case. That's why if you're looking for it on our first season of this show, you're not going to find it. And the good news is, is that that case has been reopened. And so a lot of people have been reaching out saying there's new information, there's new evidence, the case has been reopened. So guess what? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all kinds, we're going to talk about it next week. So buckle in for that. We're so excited. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, people. Good night, everybody. Ever wanted to hear from the neighbor at 9 Cloverfield Lane? Or what if I told you that Dr. Loomis's worst patient wasn't Michael Myers? I'm Adam Peacock, host of the podcast My Neighbors Are Dead. Join me each week as I talk to the lesser-known characters from your favorite horror films. Each week is an all-new, fully improvised journey into the unknown, featuring friends and luminaries from the worlds of comedy, horror, and beyond. New episodes every Tuesday on Campfire Media. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Campfire. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.